John Yancey's brought a culture. His whole, his whole thing was to build uh, a team of men with character. Uh, so it was being a gentleman first, an athlete second. And you mentioned Elliot Dunman. He's, he's one of the proud pioneers. Uh, Craig Masbeck was a pioneer. Bob Beeman, John Carlos. That's track and field historian Gary Corbett talking about the New York Pioneer Club, one of the first integrated running clubs in America. There's a great exhibit in New York City. If you're going to Milrose, you need to see this beforehand. It's at the New York Historical Society. It's called Running for Civil Rights, the New York Pioneer Club, 1936 to 1976. It's there until February 25th. Links in the show notes. And Gary joins us at the end of the podcast to talk a little bit about the Pioneer Club and also about his dad, Ted Corbett, the guy who the Six Mile Loop in Central Park is named after, 1952 Olympian, founder of the New York Roadrunners, the guy who came up with the idea of, this, of a five-borough race, and a black American who was a member of the New York Pioneer Club. This club really was pioneering. They represented what running's about now. So listen to Gary at the end. Go to the exhibit. And thanks to everyone who played in our 2024 Trials Prediction Contest sponsored by Relay. You can check your scores. If you know what Relay is, Relay Goods is a responsible shopping alternative that delivers 99% new premium running shoes at a great price. So these are shoes returned to the manufacturer, maybe worn like once and returned. I got a pair of Brooks Ghosts shipped to me here. They look amazing. They look, they look new. So... If you know what shoe you want, you can save a ton. Check it out. Link in the show notes. All right. Here's the pod where we recap an amazing Olympic marathon trials. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. Awesome episode coming your way. The 2024 US Olympic Marathon Trials are in the books. We're back from Orlando. What a day it was. Connor Mance and Clayton Young dominated the men's field. Leonard Correa takes third, but he's going to have to wait to book his official ticket to Paris. Fiona O'Keefe is a natural-born marathoner. Emily Sisson, the American record holder, is on her second Olympic team. An underdog Dakota Lindworm made her dreams become reality by grabbing the final spot to Paris. Meanwhile, Zach Panning ran one of the gutsiest races in trials history. Sarah Hall and CJ Albertson went home devastated after near misses. We're going to break down everything Olympic marathon trials. We've also got track and field to talk about. Indoor season's heating up. Back in Boston, Noah Lyles kicked off 2024 with a personal best and says he wants world indoor gold. Hobbs Kessler ruined Jake Whiteman's comeback with a big win of his own. And Ellie St. Pierre is back and better than ever after giving birth last year. Plus, Michael Cerrone has become the early leader for doping excuse of the year. And Brighton and Hove Albion have demolished Crystal Palace 4-1 in the Premier League. Really great weekend of track and field and you know sports in general once you add in that Brighton result just wanted to quick 
definitely give a shout out to everyone who met up at the let's run.com meetup on Friday night in Orlando. We had a terrific turnout of supporters club members, fans of the sport, even a Dartmouth cross country legend. Really nice to meet everyone. Thank you so much for coming. It was from all parts of the country. Uh, had an awesome time. Thanks again for your support. Really means a lot to us. This is Jonathan Gold. I am joined by Robin and Weldon Johnson. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Good to be here, John. The meetup was great. First person there, a woman with a child. I mean, expe- expectations were defied left and right. I think a lot of people exceeded the one drink minimum, one drink, free drink for supporters club members. Some guy handed me $60 cash at the end and said, keep this. We weren't checking supporters club memberships. If you were there drinking for free and not a supporters club member, now is your chance to join. Join today, letron.com slash subscribe. John, I don't know if you heard this, but from the live podcast, all the subscriptions this week go to Jonathan Galt. So join today. You'll get the insider info on track and field. I mean, it really is a cool community we got here. Yeah, I did hear that, Weldon. I appreciate the gesture, and it was it was lovely to see you and Robert in Orlando. It's not often that the full Let's Run crew gets together. There was a testy moment or two. I, I always, you know, I kind of forget sometimes because we're always remote. But then when I see you together, there's always like there's always something that. One of you gets mad at the other, and it passes. But for a moment, I'm like, "Oh yeah, these are twin brothers." Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, interesting. But Robert, how'd you have your how'd you enjoy your time in Orlando? It was amazing, except for the 30 seconds when I lost my cool in the press zone and almost was banned from all future running events for trying to get a video of Galen Rupp. And it was kind of stunning to meet. I mean, I, I got to the supporters to the party. You know, in the last 30 minutes, because my flight got in at nine, I didn't think anybody would be there. And I was stunned that, that the person that I ran into and spent the whole Sunday on the press truck was an American record holder. Really, the female version of Rojo. It's like my running soulmate. Didn't even know this existed. Ivy League grad, didn't run in college. Now na- making a name for herself in the running world. U.S. 50-mile record holder. Unfortunately, John, you know I'm not good with names, so I don't know it. Robert, I will give you a bit of a pass there, considering we met, you know, about 30 new people uh, on Friday. So it's really hard to keep track of, like, one new name after another. Also, um, I wouldn't say this is exactly your female doppelganger. I mean, she's an American record holder in the 50-mile. You haven't done anything like that and you do you do you do you run how many miles did you log last week in this sub three marathon quest we're one month into 2024 so i I hope you've upped your mileage a little bit from where it was at the start of the year no she inspired me because she's 40 plus and just set the american record the fact that i've only run still one mile the entire 2024 what is not disconcerting to me it's just god I'm injured. I, I, I'm putting this up on the message board today. This is the call to arms. I need a physical therapist. I'm willing to fly. I prefer if they were within driving distance of D.C. So that means Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland. What 
Oh, I prefer Baltimore. Two one two one two, the four one zero baby. If you're a physical therapist and you live in Baltimore, DC, or Philly, you know within that type of radius, that would be preferred. If if I have to get a plane, that's fine. I want to go see someone. They gave me some strengthening exercises for my lower legs, my hips, my glutes. I don't even want to try to run until I'm strong below because like I, I pulled my calf like walking with my son. It doesn't make any sense. But oh, anyway, sounds extraordinary. Give us a call. Eight four four. Let's run eight four four five three eight seven seven eight six. Speaking of phone number. I don't think you guys know this. I, I got a call. In the, you know, I'm in the office today recording the podcast. Office line ring. Stunned. So Orlando Sports Gambling Authorities, they're looking into, they've started an investigation about the throwing of the men's race at the 2024 Olympic trials. It's apparently running with author Buffalo Running with Buffalo's author, Chris Lears, filed a complaint. He's lost a lot of money gambling on this. He had Young to win. Young let Mance win. He's not happy about it. And there's an investigation. I mean, let's start with that, right? There are a few things we're going to unpack from the Olympic Marathon trials. If you didn't listen to our immediate post-race show, Robin and Weldon did a stand-up from just past the finish line, just before the finish line in Orlando on Saturday, giving all the immediate reactions. But one of the things I've heard from not just Chris, but another one of my friends texted me after the race. He's like, John, where do you stand on this Mance Young thing? Like, I can't believe they did this. And there's a whole thread about it. Clayton Young let Mance win. He admitted it. Connor Mance and his stra- I just read Connor Mance's Strava entry on the race. He said, Clayton could have outsprinted me. I don't really know why he didn't. And... There's a whole brouhaha. Oh my God, this is a national championship. How could this happen? I don't know about you guys. I'm struggling to have strong feelings on this. If they did this in the Olympic Games, yeah, I'd be kind of upset about it with the gold and silver medal. The trials, the whole point is to make the team. They were so far ahead of each of everyone else, their training partners. This happened in 1972. Kenny Moore and Frank Shorter were good friends. They crossed the finish line together. Now, that's a little different. They crossed the finish line. They were credited as co-champions. You know, this one, Connor Mance did finish one second ahead of Clayton Young, but I don't know. The whole point is to make the team, and if Clayton Young wants to give up $15,000 worth of prize money, which was the difference between first and second, I don't, I'm finding it hard to care all that much about it. Do you guys have a strong opinion on this finished mini-controversy? It didn't bug me that much, John. The New Haven one bugged me more for some reason. If you don't know what Weldon's talking about, at the U.S. 20K Championships in September, many people think the roles were reversed. Connor Mance let Clayton Young win because Young could get some points for the USATF Road Series, so the win was more important to him. I don't know. I guess I I wish they would just finish together if they're going to do that, but... It's an Olympic trials. To me, this is the one race where you don't have to win it. Now, if you're Clayton Young, his wife might be caring. He just lost $15,000. Are they going to split the money? ASICs probably isn't very happy. And it, I mean, this could have cost them a lot of money, John. I don't know if there's like, could there be bonuses for winning the Olympic marathon trials? I would love to know the, the back end. This could have cost them a lot of money. 
I assume the bonuses are for making the team and not winning the race. Look, as someone who's publicly irate when they hand out two Olympic gold medals, I will admit that during the race on the press truck, I was like, what's going to happen? And I don't know if it was someone else on the press truck or if it was someone on the Let's Run forum. I'm on the press truck reading the forum. Even though I'm 50 yards from the runners, I'm getting the best insight from the forum. So keep it up, message board posters. Someone said or wrote, I believe it was actually on the message board, there's no way that Connor Mance is going to let Young win. He's too competitive. But what we got was the opposite. Young let him win. Young was not in trouble. He was celebrating. He could have easily won that race. But I did say, I'll admit to thinking at the time, okay, what do you do here as your, as your training partner? At the time, I was like, okay, if they want to go hand in hand like 1972, I don't have a problem with that. But, and I said I would do that because if it was Weldon, I wouldn't want to beat him. But Weldon would beat me and just kick, kick past me. Well, I'd probably say sure and then sprint in. But what we got was way worse than that. I'd prefer to see the race, I think. Instead, we had just Young back off at the last minute. Now, what I thought happened, I, I think y'all were describing someone ran over for a flag. That didn't happen. Young just backed off. So I, I'm not sure why. Well, he, he felt did run way. over for a flag, but that didn't end up affecting the, the outcome at the end. And I'm fine with Young staying with Mance, helping him get on the team. But employee 1.1, Steve Soprano said it said the best. Like, you know, this should have been thought out way out, way out of time. And then it should have been like, okay, guys, let's race it out. Last half mile, last quarter mile, let's do it. I mean, you can argue this is like the semifinals of, you know, the 1500 at Worlds, and it doesn't matter if you win your heat or not. But what do we want people jogging it in at the Olympic trials from now on in the 1500, 800? Oh, I don't care if I win. No, it's bogus. It, this is a sport, not just for the athletes. It's also for the fans. So race it out. That should be the criteria expectation moving forward. At this point, if they'd gone hand in hand, it would have been okay for me. But the more I think about it, I don't, I don't like that. And what we got was the worst of three worlds. But the, look, big picture story. These guys had, had the two standard. They had the standard. The only two Americans with the standard. And they balled out and went one-two. It, it was a great day for them. They had tons of friends and family. Mance people were dressed out in Mance Zone t-shirts, blue and white. Young Kuru was in A6 pink. They were all over the place. And shout, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time with, obviously, with Clayton Young's family, considering that he has the same, considering that I named my son Clayton after him. Big fan, always have been. But um, his kids, age five and three, I mean, they had T-shirts on, said my dad just made the Olympic team. So whoever made those, mom or grandma, they weren't afraid of a jinx. You know, it, it was just, it, they, they were really good. D they delivered his favorites. Yeah, no, incredibly impressive run by both of them. Robert, one thing you said on the post-race podcast on Saturday, I was in, in shock by. Clayton, mom, sorry, Clayton Young's mother, before the 2020 trials, had bought a plane ticket and reserved an Airbnb in Japan for that year's Olympic marathon. That was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Clayton Young went into the 2020 trials basically off of three weeks of running. He'd been injured. 
he wasn't particularly good at that point. Like he was an NCAA champion in the 10K the year before, but had almost zero chance to make the Olympic team. And she was so confident. She booked this, you know, tickets and everything in advance. And then this time around, having been bitten, he ended up finishing 136th, by the way. Uh, this time around, she didn't do that because, you know, wasn't sure if he'd make the team. But he ended up making it and in style as well. So I just thought that was crazy. Like the co- the confidence in the young clan because they, they had the T-shirts made up, which looked adorable and proved to be pathetic, but the prophetic, not pathetic. But that uh, reservation, I'm like, wow, that is belief in your son right there. Well, John, having a little trouble with words recently, hearing people saying the wrong word. Oh, interesting. But yeah, that T-shirt, the Airbnb thing's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But they, uh, yeah, finishing, watching it again now, I think they should have finished together. My question is, John, is there any provision to call them co-winners like they did in 1972 or whatever Yeah, I think was. timing was a little different in 1972. Like the timing system for 2024, you've got, you know, they have the finish times down to the hundredth. Clayton Young was 1.19 seconds behind Connor Mance. So even if they cross the finish line together and say, hey, we want to be co-champions, someone is going to edge ahead by a hundredth of a second or something. So I don't know if there's an actual way for them to be declared co-winners sports is meant to have a, a, a winner and a loser it really is i mean that, that's what it's about and we didn't get that so it's, it's so it's a little bit unsatisfying but it, it's it's interesting to me that young we thought it was a shock that he almost beat him in chicago and watching them over the final six miles here you know he may get beat all the time in practice but it's not going to be a shock if he beats Connor Manson in, in, in Paris at this point for me. Right. That was one of my questions. I saw some people trying to frame this as Connor Mance has taken over the mantle as America's greatest marathoner. You know, Galen Rupp has full, you know, fallen off. Mance was the top American in Chicago. Mance wins the trials. And I'm like, well, he only won the trials because Young let him win. Like to me, I view it as more of a 1A, 1B situation. I think Mance has the highest ceiling. He was a better runner in college. Granted, he didn't win NCAAs on the track like Young, but he did win NCAA cross twice, which is harder to do. And he's three years younger. And he did beat Man- beat Young by 13 seconds in Chicago. But I view to this point, I think they're pretty similar in the marathon. I do think Mance has the higher potential, but how, how do you guys see it as like the top dog in American marathoning right now? I'm not sure you can say that Mance is ahead of Young right now, John. Or the, but why does he have a higher ceiling? Just because he's faster on the track? He was better in college. He's just, faster on the track and he's younger by three years. Okay. Maybe Young's better in the heat. I'm surprised Robert hasn't gone there yet already. Said Clayton Young cheated like Galen Rupp at the 2016 Olympics. Those of you who don't know, this was genius. But this shows everything, every little thing difference. And this could be the advantage that made him feel so good at the end of the race. Clayton mm-hmm. Young looked up the max height of a water bottle he could have. He got some big sort of thermos thing. We need to find the pictures of this or video. I still haven't oh, he just it. put it on his Instagram. He did a post showing the exact setup of how he would do it. And he said, if anyone found these hats on the course, I autographed them beforehand. I'd like them back. 
So he, he's not hiding away from this at all. I don't think he's hiding from it, but that's good to see because I hadn't seen it. So let me pull that up. But he stuffed a smaller water bottle inside the bigger water bottle and then a frozen hat as well. And every water stop, he'd put on this frozen hat. So pretty amazing. But they had to put the hat, they had to give it to the authorities, the race officials, 19 hours before. I want to do this to see how cold it is. I love it. It's smart. I don't understand why his training partner wouldn't do the same thing. And it very well may have impacted the race. I just, we had seen Galen Rupp do it eight years ago and win a medal. I think the problem I had there was they were handing it to him. Correct? But apparently that was in the rules. You were allowed to have someone, hand, you know, they hand LA Kipchoge the bottles. So glad he researched it. Glad he was smart. Glad he ran so well. We probably do need to rescore, though. The the uh, Maybe we just – I was joking earlier about the Orlando Gambling Authorities, but we, we're going to have to invalidate the scoring and the um, – Let's run.com prediction contest sponsored by Relay. I just logged in. It doesn't look like I went. I won and I did particularly poorly in the men's competition. Must have been because the integrity of the race was at stake, was was violated. Well, here's the thing about that, though. I, I know Chris Lee is big on gambling, and I think gambling for running and track and field, I don't think it's going to solve every problem, but I think it would be more interesting to have it. You know, it makes... I think fans could enjoy it a little bit more uh, with some of these events, or it might pull in some outside fans. I don't know. I don't think it's a bad idea. But this sort of thing, like, you know, you're acting as if this doesn't, sort of thing doesn't happen in other sports. You'll get teams hit a meaningless three-pointer at the buzzer to cover the point spread, or you'll get teams kneeling down, and that will cost someone in their fantasy matchup at the end of the game, or they'll take a safety at the end of the game. Like, all these sort of fluke, weird things happen in other sports as well. And that's just sort of the risk you take with gambling. I don't think people like, oh my God, Connor Clayton Young, let Connor Mance win. I need my money back. It's just sort of like comes with the territory and when you gamble on sports. The, the difference is, John, the examples you are, are all talking about a point spread. It's not people throwing the one loss win, win away. I've never been at a sporting event where someone purposely loses the event. What do you think NBA teams are doing at the end of seasons when they're trying to jockey for draft position? Uh, I'll repeat what I just said. I've never been to a sporting event where people intentionally lose the sporting event. So I, I have no interest in going to that event. Okay. And to me, the Olympic trials are one of the U.S. Olympic marathon trials. And I guess I'd put the marathon grand championships in Japan as this. To me, they're one of the greatest races on planet Earth. That may seem like her hyperbole, but Ambie Burfoot agrees with me. He's been to everyone since 1968, but for some reason he's written a column saying that they're unfair and need to be abolished. We need to talk about that later. But Well, can we talk about it right now for like two minutes? Because, Robert, I feel like this is a totally unfair matchup. We've got one of the smartest, I don't know if I would call you the most articulate, but you come up with good arguments we've got you on one side and we've got a basically nonsensical argument from ambi who i respect but 
I just think he's wrong in this case. I don't even think this is a fair matchup. It's just going to be you dunking on him so hard that the rim's going to break off. So can you just give a quick summary of why his column is wrong? He's saying the Olympic marathon trials is not the way to best is not the way to pick the best Olympic team. He thinks that a selection committee would yes. pick the best U.S. marathoners because it wouldn't it would prevent someone you know who is very good but having an off day from you know missing the team. Sure enough. Amy Burfoot, former Boston Marathon winner, has written a marathon book, marathonhandbook.com. Opinion, it's time to overhaul the U.S. Olympic trials format. Here's how. And he goes farther than that in the article. I just read this article before we started recording, and I'm, I'm hot about it. Because I love Andy, but I, I honestly thought, like, this has to be satire, but it's not. He says, the trials are the stupidest, most, most get misguided event I can imagine. It pains me deeply to say that. I may have attended more marathon trials than anyone else in the country, starting in 1968. The trials is my favorite distance event by far. So right there to me, that's the end of the argument. <laughs> I says, if your something is your favorite distance event, it can't be the stupidest, most, most guided event I can imagine. Money in the sport comes from fans. It is the greatest distance event and track. Then by definition, it has to be a keeper. You don't get rid of it. Putting the best teams, the best, onto a team or into the Olympics is lame. And I say that as a Baltimore Ravens fan. Like, I wish we, we were the one of the two best teams in football during the regular season. And unfortunately, even though my jersey just got here yesterday from freaking mainland China, I'll be wearing it crying on Sunday. Then he has this argument that Christine Clark, who won the 2000 trials out of nowhere, she wasn't even among the 10 female mar- best 10 female marathoners in the US probably not among the top 20 so why would she be going to the olympics ahead of the more proven runners answer because she beat them all in the trials race in march of 2020 <laughs> she was clearly among 2000 best, yeah 10th best female runners that day and then he says shoe company execs agents coaches and other suspect parties would not get a vote in selecting the team the usatf would control the process Oh, Ambie, that, that makes me feel so good that we don't have the shoe exact, but we've got those geniuses at the USATF in charge. I mean, we can all sleep well at night. And then the really the nail in the coffin to his argument is I, I do give him credit for writing this article before the trials because he picks the team. On the women's side, I would pick Emily Sisson, Kira D'Amato, and Betsy Sena, all of whom ran strong and fast in 2023. All I can say is thank God that's not our team because Fiona O'Keefe would not have been selected this year, nor would Molly Seidel have been selected in 2020. USA would have lost out on one medal, if not two. So do we have any confidence that Kira D'Amato now after this race? We'll talk about the women's race later. Is good at the heat. Betsy Sano overcooked it. I'm not sure she's good in the heat either. She only ran 226 in Sydney, although she's a win it. So, yeah. But, all right. Is that enough? Because I love Andy, and you, know, you, you can criticize people you like. Yeah, his basic argument is you can pick a better team, a more competitive team, one that will have more success at the Olympics by not having a trials. I just fundamentally disagree with that. There is no perfect way to select it, but this is the most, this is the fairest. You can't, the athletes, this will draw the least complaints from the athletes because if his women's, his men's team was, was Connor Mance, Clayton Young, and Galen Rupp. So Scott Farber will be like, what did, What do you mean? I got one DNF in Berlin. I was running great in the last couple of years. I'm not on the team. And also, it turns out, maybe Galen Rupp is washed up because he was not even competitive. You know, he was up with the front, but he fell back badly. Like, 
you're going to feel pretty silly having Galen Rupp on the team after how Saturday played out. So, and the trials, I would argue, does a pretty good job of producing athletes who run well at the Olympics. Molly Seidel ran her way onto the team, surprisingly medaled in Sapporo. Uh, Jared Ward, people weren't picking him in 2016. He got sixth. Uh, even Mebka Flesky, I don't think people would pick him ahead of 2012. He ends up winning the trials, getting fourth in London. So I think the trials does a pretty good job of selecting a good team. Is there a perfect solution? No, but it's the fairest. And you'd also be ruining what, the greatest marathon in the United States. So I think it's... And, uh, yeah. and imagine if we did it to the, on the track too, and the runners just avoided each other 24-7 and like went to specialized BU tracks to put up a time trial time. It would be insane. So it's, so it's a dumb argument. But we've been talking for like 30 minutes close to it. And we have not mentioned the name Zach Panny. Uh, it's a disservice. So the story of the race from mile five to 20 was Zach, Zach Panning's show. So you guys got to Orlando a day early. You're at the press conference. Some of the big names weren't there. I said, well, you know, what was interesting and you guys said Scott Fobble said third place would be 208.10 or better. And I just laughed at that. And I put a $1,000 guarantee that third place would not be 208.10 or better. My thought process in this was simple. The U.S. men have had a number of years to run under 208.10. Only two of them have done it with rabbits in ideal conditions. On Saturday in Orlando, there was no rabbits, which I think is worth five to six seconds per mile. And it was warm, or warmer than you'd like. It wasn't that hot. It was you know low 60s at the start. Say the first half of the race was fine. Second half of the race, it's getting up in the low 70s. At the finish, not ideal. That's got to be worth at least a minute to me, minute and a half maybe. I'm like, they're not going to do it. So when they ran their first five miles at five-minute pace, I was starting to celebrate. My American record holder friend said, looks like your money's safe, Rojo. Started going online shopping, looking to see where I was going to spend that $1,000. And then Zach Panning just threw the hammer down. And my God, it was impressive. It, this guy just was like under 450 every single mile. Two, eight, 10 paces, 453. And when he first started it as a former coach, I thought, why is he doing this? Is he worried about the time? If I was a guy in that race, I would have not worried about the 208.10 time. I would the odds that the third placer gets in are pretty good or very good, I would say. Plus, if I'm having a good race, uh, I think it's better just to try to kick for second or first than it is to try to push the pace for 21 miles and try to run 208.10. Now, afterwards, he said he kind of wanted the time, but that wasn't his main concern. He just wanted an honest race. And got all the way halfway, 104.06. 20 miles, he's way ahead of pace. All they got to do is average 457 on the way home. And he didn't do it. They say that, you know, it's a 20-mile warm-up in a 10K race. That was certainly true on Saturday because the guys slowed down significantly. And they yeah, no one for, broke 208.10. It made for an incredibly compelling final miles. This is the sort of thing I say I wish we had more of in world marathon majors and part of it is because we've got people battling for three spots whereas opposed to the majors you kind of just concern with who wins but people were slowing down people moving up Leonard Curry looked like he was totally dead he was just slowing down he got dropped 
you know, he ran 519 for mile 23, 525 for mile 24. After that, you've been like, no way. This guy's totally cooked. There's no way he makes the Olympic team. Then he comes back with a 509, 508, and he kicks down the home straight, and he gets himself into third place. It was terrific racing over the final miles. It's what's so exciting about the marathon is people, someone like Panning, taking it out hard, and can he hold on? And in terms of that strategy... I don't think the strategy of pushing the pace was entirely wrong. First of all, I, have, I think we all have a tremendous respect for him. He ran a gutsy, brave race. Uh, he averaged 15 miles from mile five to mile 20. He averaged 206.17 pace. Like, can we get him to Valencia in December? I really do think this guy could run 206 or 207 in that race with pacing and perfect weather and all that. But I think the thing is, he probably just pushed a little early. Like, if he had made that big move, at 10 miles or even, I don't know, like if he just held off a little bit, that might have helped him get to the finish because we all said, what did we say going into this race? That lost loop, it's mostly in the sun. The temperature is going to be in the mid to high 60s at that point. People are going to be feeling the heat. And he was in position to make the team. 25 miles, he was third place. But then he ran a 6.03 final uh 26 mile, and he was out of contention. He faded all the way to six. That's all it takes, people. One bad mile. I mean, he was slowing down already, but he just ran out of gas. And if he had waited just a little longer to make that move, maybe he makes it to 26.2 miles in third place. We'll never know. But I commend him for the run. I just think, you know, the cold light of day, he probably pushed a little too soon. We clearly pushed too soon or too hard. I mean, he didn't make it to the finish, just by definition. And I said this on the post-race show. Reminded us it's a marathon. I still loved it. I went on the course, essentially one major point of the race, mile 18 for the men. I just happened to be standing there. I see all these team panning shirts and just a bunch of yellow. And I said, hey, do you guys know Zach Panning? I said, get it, you know, mingle with the masses. And this guy turns to me and he's like, my daughter married Zach Panning or something like that. I'm like, your daughter, I'm like, your son-in-law is a baller. And then he shows me his daughter, Zach's wife. And I just said, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but it's super impressive no matter what. I stick to that claim. Does the name Tyler Pennell mean anything to you guys? Yes, of course. I mean, I was in the press conference. I heard the story. I remember the 2016 trials in LA. He finished fourth. Oh, I'm sorry, he finished fifth. His schedule was fourth in that race. But Pennell was in contention for a long time. Schedule was what? What happened to that guy's marathon? Tyler Pennell, like Zach Panning, a D2 star? He was clear of the field. With Meb Kaflesky and I'm not sure it wasn't Jared Ward. Galen Rupp? Oh yeah. Forgot about Galen Rupp, the champion and Olympic medalist that year. And apparently Meb said, Hey, we got it, don't go too hard. And Pinnell's like, screw it, I want to try to win this race. Well, Tyler Pinnell finished fifth. We said, you know, is this 
going to be his best watermark. He did get fourth of the 2018 Boston Marathon. That was the crazy weather year. But did you guys know Tyler Pinnell's still running? I did as of 30 seconds ago because I looked him up while you were talking. 2-12-16 PB in Houston last year. And he was at the Olympic trials, a participant. Did not make it to the halfway mark and dropped out. But I don't think this is, for whatever reason, this is definitely not Zach Panning's high water mark. I think we're going to see more from him. But making an, an Olympic team, this may have been his chance. That's what's so special about these moments. It's every four years. Chris Slinsky never made an Olympic team. There's a lot of good ones have never made an Olympic team. So I hope he gets another shot. But that's that's why we love this event, right? And this is why it needs to keep going. C.J. Albertson ended up coming 10 seconds from the Olympic team. Let's talk about C.J. a little bit because this getting ready for the show, I wanted to like look at the top 10 and see you know how fast people ran and how much slower they ran than their personal best. Actually, C.J. was one of two people in the top 10 that actually PR'd in this race. And the same was true in the women's race. Um, CJ had a two ten twenty three PB. He had actually never broken two eleven on a non aided course. He's really good at Boston. Ran two ten oh seven. But what happened to him was exactly what he envisioned in that race, and it's exactly what he told us in the podcast. He's like, if they go out in 64 flat, I think you'll have a big pack. Now, you didn't have as big of a pack as he said because the first five miles were slower. But CJ fell off right before halfway, I think in the 12th or 13th mile. It's only a few seconds back. But he just kept running like right around five-minute pace, under four or five minutes for a lot of them. He just wasn't able to run the 440s. But he's like, in my head, I envision myself running these guys down. And I remember thinking, well, do people really slow down when he told me that? Answer, yes, they do. And he was running them down. At mile 21, he was one minute and 34 seconds back of third place. At the finish line, after a 4.58 last mile, I think it was, he was 10 seconds away from the Olympic team. You're underselling it, Robert. 23 miles, he was 132 behind third place. I mean, 24 miles. He was 113 behind third place. And his interview was incredible. If you go to YouTube, our YouTube page, we have it on there because he was processing in real time how close he came. And I think the thing that's difficult is at that stage of the race, you know, you're kind of getting delirious. And you also, if you're 113 behind third, you're not going to be able to see that person. You don't know how far these gaps are. And it is hard to know unless you've got people yelling specifically like this person is that far back. He said he didn't realize how close he was to the third spot until 1,200 to go. And at that point, he's basically all out. But he's like, oh, you know, I should have just run one of my earlier miles 10 seconds faster or something like that. It's just, it was devastating to see him sort of processing this. But also, I really appreciated the, the raw emotions he showed. At mile 25, he's 41 seconds behind third. But he was... That sounds like monumental, like you're not going to make that up. But if you actually look 
compare him to Leonard Career, who ended up making the team, he's only 24 seconds back. That would have been epic if this guy had come back from that far and done it. But, you know, I, I thought about maybe we'll do it for Friday's show. I thought about like grading, giving a grade to all the people that we had in our preview, the top men and the long shot men, you know, A through F. I thought it hurt some people's feelings. But I, I think he should be extremely proud of that effort. I mean, he, he's kind of upset because he's never broken 210. He runs 21007. But to do that on a warm, warmish day, you know, and, and to run a PR. So let's look at this. Connor Mance, 118 off his PB. Clayton Young, 106. Now, and think about that. They had a rabbit longer than they do in any race they've ever run. For 20 miles, they had a perfect rabbit. Um, Winter career, 201 off his PB. Okana Kibet actually ran a PB if you don't count Boston, but he's run 209.07 before. But, you know, most guys, Zach Panning, 72 seconds off his PB. Can I guess who the other person who ran a PB was in the top 10? Yes. Was it Nathan Martin, Robert? Because that guy ran a hell of a race. No, it was not. It wasn't. He oh, actually ran 210.45 at Grandma's. Oh, okay. And he's run 211.05 on a regular course, and he ran 211 flat. So the other PB, other guy to PB was Josh Yuzuski for eighth. He had run 211.09. He ran he ran 211.09 when his PB was 211.26. So, you know, it, it's hard to do that. But I've written, you know, a column in the week that was where I, I played, praised the effort by panning, but said basically I think it was stupid. But I said he shouldn't feel too bad about it. And I, we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Elliot Kipchoge did the same thing last year in Boston. And I had the same impression. Like, wait, what have we learned from sub two? <laughs> Enio spent millions of dollars, probably literally, certainly hundreds of thousands, to have seven pacers around Kipchoge. And then he tried to lead Boston Marathon basically from start to finish and faded the mile 19 by mile, you know, panning made it longer than Kipchoge did. They both faded and didn't win. Um, but it still made the race a lot more fun to have him do that. And the transformation, you really got to read this article if you haven't. If you haven't seen the picture of Zach Panning as a freshman in high school, I mean, he was a chubby little kid that literally played fullback on the football team. And to have him now be one of the best runners in the, in the U.S., if not the world, is pretty cool. So congrats on the effort. I right, We should turn to the women's race. And thank God the selectors did not pick a team ahead of time because Pumas Fino O'Keefe would not be on it. In her marathon debut, she was sensational. She set a U.S. debut record. She set American U.S. Olympic trials record. She... Destroyed the American record holder by 32 seconds. She wins in 222.10. Alistair Craig told us ahead of time she's made for the marathon. He told us if, if my wife, Amy, who, congratulations, had a baby four months ago, Amy, former world championship medalist in the marathon, he's like, if she had a build up like this, she'd be feeling very confident. Well, we see why. Because it was amazing, right? Not only to, to rock your first marathon, win the trials, but to have the confidence just to like, you're not even at mile 20 yet. You just take off. I got this. 
I think when you're feeling that good, you, it's hard to stay on the leash. That's one thing Alice has said is in workouts, you know, if anything, it's them trying to hold her back and say, hey, hey, don't push too much. But she was feeling great. And Robert, I'm working on a post-trials article. You guys already sort of floated this. Like, could she possibly medal in Paris? I wouldn't have her as like a betting favorite. But if I'm no, looking at this hell stuff. no. Well, okay. That's why I said I wouldn't have her as a betting favorite. But... I'm adding up these factors. I'm like, if I was going to pick sort of like an underdog Molly Seidel type medalist, she fits everything I'm looking for. One, still like young, new to the marathon, but she's still got potential. Uh, could improve even more from what she, where she's at now. Two, she ran 2.22.10 in the heat in Orlando. Uh, I think there's going to be similar conditions in Paris. It might be even a little warmer, but it took 2.27 to medal in Sapporo at the 2021 Olympics. 227, people. So if you're running 222 in the heat, that could medal. Like, do you guys think 222 in an Olympic marathon this summer could medal? I think it could. Conditions might be worse, but it's going to slow people down. Obviously, the race will play out a little bit differently. And then the other thing is, Alistair and Amy said she's good at hills as well. And there are a couple of monster hills in the middle of this course. So... I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow, she's got all the things you would look for in sort of one of those underdog uh, Molly Seidel-type medalists. I think Fiona O'Keefe fits the bill. Now, on paper, people like Hassan and O'Beary and Teague's DeSefa, you know, they're minutes fitter than her. But that stuff's a race because crazy things happen in the Olympic marathon. Or it can be a race. I assume there will be betting odds for that. And I almost certainly put some money down on her. Not that I think she's going to do it, but I'll be certainly waking up to watch that race because of the potential that I see for a potential long shot medal. Whereas four years ago, John, we got in, you know, we finished up the, the podcast at 3 a.m. and the race was starting in three hours. And I was like, he's like, hey, you want to watch the, you want me to wake you up to watch the women's marathon? I was like, because remember, it wasn't in Tokyo, it was in Sapporo. So we weren't covering it like, you know, in person, I was like, wait, who's running for us again? So tired and remember, and you're totally well, like, no, we have no metal shot. I, like, I, had, me up. I had thrown out on the podcast the night before. I said, I don't know, crazy things happen. Molly Seidel might metal. You know, that's not, and then you guys laughed at me. And then 12 hours later, she did metal. But in our defense, we were up to like 2 a.m. and the race was starting at 6 a.m. And we needed, you know, we haven't been you sleeping know. the whole Olympics, so. When you look at it, I mean, you have a 211.53 world record. But again, do I know that Tidges himself is good at running in warm conditions? I don't. Hassan seems like a baller who can do well in just about any condition. 213, 215, 215. You know, you've got seven women that have broken 217. You know, but Sisson's run 218. And O'Keefe just beat her by like 30 seconds. So let's say she's the equivalent of 217. Well, that puts you in the mix because only 11 women last year broke 218. And what do we see at the trials? Not all the women are going to run as good as they should. I think there's a much higher bomb rate at a trials or an Olympics than there is a normal marathon for two reasons. One, it's not rabbited, it's hot weather, etc. Two, if you if your training's not perfect for a regular marathon, you just pull out and pick another one a few months later. 
that that was the thing that was hard being a pro runner. Like there was no, there was very rarely you had times you had to be in shape. You could always just push it back. Oh, I'll get in shape two more months, three more months. Whereas in college, you, know, you got to be ready for this meet. As a pro, you got to be ready for the Olympics. So you, some of the people are going to be injured in the training and just not pull out because they want to go to the Olympics. And then the, the other thing is you only get six entrants from Kenya and Ethiopia. In many ways, you know that like at least two of them are going to run terrible. Mm-hmm. So that's down to four. So what do we say before our own trials? I thought the way we previewed the women's race, we had six studs. Like if they run a races, they should not lose to anyone else in this field. And then we, but, but, uh, Tulamek was hurt. Seidel pulled out. We're down to four. I'm like, okay, what are the odds that two of these four don't live up to the billing? I was pretty confident Sarah Hall would not do it. So what are the odds someone else doesn't do it? So at least well, Sarah Hall ran okay. She, she yeah. didn't run her best possible race. She ran okay, but Seidel, sorry, not Seidel. Uh, Sena and Demado both DNF'd. Once they're off the team, we said like some. I don't know if you, you would, would you call her a rando, but someone who we don't expect, who is viewed as an outsider, is probably going to be on the team because there's only four or five really star women, and one or two of them are probably not going to run great. So Fiona O'Keefe, we didn't have her as a total outsider. We knew she had good marathon potential. The question was, could she do it in a debut? And then Dakota Lindworm, who Robert listened in his long shots. I mean, she's the one who runs on, and she's the huge underdog story in third. But, you know, we knew something, we knew someone was going to have to take that spot. And whoever it was, they were going to be kind of an underdog just because of the way that the field shook out. Presumably, everybody knows 222.10 for the win, 222.42 for Sisson. Then there was a big gap to third place. 225.31, 225.31, the coolest story of the dream, of, of, of the trials, where her dreams become reality. I've always said that's the motto of the website, but normally like Weldon's dreams didn't come become reality. He was never third. He was fourth twice at USA's. And this woman, her dreams, the coach, Chris Lundstrom, their dreams become reality. They both have jobs. Unreal, unreal. And we put in a request to her agent, Howie Kofleski, to have her on the podcast. So hopefully we'll just release that as its own podcast later in the week. I mean, that's just this. Cool, cool story. But when you look at it, what happened up front, I mean, O'Keefe, we didn't know. We thought maybe that was possible, but that's like an A-plus-plus race because I was like, okay, she's made for the marathon, but is she quite as good as Sisson in them? You know, she's not quite as good on the track, and she just, I mean, it was amazing. But with Sisson, if I was judging her and giving her a grade, I know she made the Olympic team. I'd probably say B-minus. No, come on, A minus. You made she made the Olympic team. You can't give her lo- anything. You can't give her a B for making the team, right? She was second. We thought she'd get first, and she got second. That's a B. Okay, B plus. But it's not a B minus when you make the Olympic team. My goodness. Okay, but what we said about her was correct. In the interview, she said, I'm ready to go. I'm healthy. That's a key thing. She said, four years ago, I think I overcooked myself, so I purposely held back. And I said, I think this is smart because she's a 218 woman. She can run a B race, run 220 equivalent, and good luck finding three other women that can do that to beat her. And that's exactly what happened. She played it in safe in training. She played it safe in the race. But I said in the, in the, in the recap, she cannot play it safe if she wants to be balls, you know, try to go for medal. And Sapporo, she needs to go for broke. Now, someone who did go for broke from this in the training cycle was Betsy Sana. And we, we read these articles from Kenya. And for some reason, we all just anointed this 221 one as the team. But I did say, like, in the final podcast, I was like, you know what? How do we know she didn't overdo it? 
she was a big disappointment to me. So she fell off and I think dropped out. But Lindworm is wild. She came into the meet with a 224 PB PB from Chicago in October. She was the fifth American in that race. She lost to Sisson, Seidel, Gabby Rooker, uh, and Sarah Vaughn. And imagine this. If I told you before the race that Dakota Lindworm will fall off the lead pack at 17 miles. And they went through halfway in what, 72 something? No. Faster, right, John? 71.43. And she'll run, slow down to 5.42 pace all the way home. She's in eighth place. She falls off the lead pack in eighth place, does not pick it up, barely hangs on. She runs 229 pace for the final nine miles. Makes a team. This is even crazier. At the 21 mile mark, from 21 miles to the finish, she ran at a 553 pace. She actually had one mile over six minutes. She ran 234 marathon pace for the final 5.2 miles and made the Olympic team because none of the big studs were doing anything that were left in the field. And everybody else, like, you know, when you're a, what was the halfway split again? 71-43. Yeah, because a bunch of 224-225 marathoners went out in 223 pace on a hot day. Of course they're going to blow up. And they all blew up. She just blew up the least of them. And as forever will be an Olympian. And this Amby Burfitt idea of picking the team, I don't care. Yeah, we would pick somebody else behind her if we were trying to get our three highest places, but third American is not going to medal anyways. It's such a cool story that this paralegal, God, is amazing. Yeah. I mean, like, like, she was terrible. Not terrible. She had like 16, 43, 34 minutes in college. I can't even believe she wanted to keep running. No, Robin, so this is the crazy thing about it, right? First of all, the, the splits, it's wild she made this team. I mean, people, everyone was just melting down. These are her last four full miles. 545, 553, 543. That was a downhill mile. And then 605. She ran a 605, 26 miles. She still made the team. That's just people were slowing down so much. And I was digging into her background. First of all, it's kind of wild she even decided to run in high school. Sorry, in college. Because this was a D2 runner, but she was a D2 walk-on. She needed to, you know, she showed up. She ended up earning a scholarship at Northern State. But I went back and looked at her high school PB. She ran 535 for 1600 and 1156 for 3200. She never competed at the Minnesota State Meet in cross country. Kind of confused why she wasn't even in this. She didn't even run like the state qualifier. Okay, hockey season. Does it overlap with cross country? She ran a whole. Cro- I need to get the story behind this because she was 18th at a conference meet in cross country, her senior year of high school, and then didn't run the state qualifying meet. But she clearly was in the top seven. So. I don't know. That was kind of wild, though. 18th in a high school conference meet. Plenty of people who finish 18th in the high school conference meet just give up and don't run in college. She walks on at Northern State. She makes NCAAs a few times, but this is D2 NCAAs. Her PB is 1643, 3457. Best finish sixth in the D2 championships in the 10,000. Those are not the resume that screams you should continue 
and try to become a professional runner. She decides, nope, I'm not giving up. I want to do it. I'm moving to Minneapolis. I'm going to try to join Minnesota Distance Elite. She kind of had to talk her way onto the team, but Chris Lundstrom, who runs the program, you know, he doesn't like to turn that many people away, so she's on there. And then by 2022, turns out, oh, she's actually really good at the marathon, gets a sponsorship with Puma, and then entering the trials, she was at least on the radar as a dark horse. So to me, the bigger upset isn't making the team. It's that she didn't give up when she wasn't a very good high school runner, and she didn't give up when you know she was an okay D2 runner, but could easily have just given up on competitive running after that. So she kept going both times, and now it's an underdog story. People are going to be talking about this for, for decades. She's like the example of don't give up, you can Olympians can come from anywhere. It's an awesome, awesome story. Oh, this is the Brian Sell story on steroids. It's better. It's it's just a better story. I mean, Brian Sell was part of the Hanson Brooks like legit pro team with a legit sponsor. This is like, I mean, this is just crazy. Well, she does have she does have a sponsor. She's sponsored by Puma. She does also work as a paralegal. I don't know how big her Puma deal is. I'm sure it's about to skyrocket after Saturday, but. To get to that point is just, the fact that she was even in position to get a Puma sponsorship after her high school and college careers is amazing. I don't know. To be honest, if I was a shoe exec, I wouldn't have it skyrocket. This will be the peak of the story, I would assume. Yeah, but she's going to have a bonus in there. Like you, your contract oh, goes yeah. up. You know, you'll get a bonus. Yeah. yeah. All right. We've waited long enough to do this. We will have some other stuff to talk about with this woman's race, I think. But we haven't scored our fantasy draft which was conducted two weeks before the trials. Robert has made, he made several roster adjustments after the draft, but I have the scores and I'm going to read them off in reverse order. Coming in last with, we're going to score. So for you guys who didn't listen to the episode, we did a snake draft. We picked four athletes per person to make the team. We're going to score the top three with their results from the trials and whoever has the lowest score among that team is the champion. So wait, can you can you just rem- just give me my four people to remind me who I had so I can prepare yeah, myself so you, mentally? You drafted Emily Sisson, Galen Rupp, Molly Seidel, and Alephine Tuliamak, but you subbed in Paul Chalimo after Seidel withdrew, and then after you heard that Tuliamak had been injured, you subbed in Leonard Correa. So that was Ooh. your team. Uh so yeah, well, all right, you're feeling all right. I- I'll tell you, I was lost. Uh, my team, one of the worst number one overall picks I could have made. I, I somehow picked Betsy Sater instead of Connor Mance. I-, I think, sorry, I can't. I don't know if I can trust Dave Ross anymore. He texts me that Sina's crossing, you know, crushing everyone and work out. She's going to win the trials, and he incepted me. I'm like, if I hadn't gotten that text, I would have just been Connor Mance is the safest pick, right? So that text- Weldon. I didn't even know about that text. We got another text from a shoe exec saying, "Oh no, no, that was that was that was about Leonard Career. Never mind." Yeah, and that one, I had actually I had seen like hard evidence of like her GPS and like the workouts. It wasn't just like, "Oh, she's crushing two hundred four guys." This one was like actually actual proof of really impressive workouts. And anyway, so I picked Betsy Sena. It totally backfired. She DNF'd. Weldon even offered me the day before the trials or the week before the trials to switch Connor Mance and Betsy Sena. He offered straight up Connor Mance. You could have him for Betsy Sena. And this was after we, he interviewed Betsy Sena. And I turned him down. I'm just a moron. I don't know how else to say this. So 
my team was Betsy Sena, Scott Fable, Clayton Young, and Sarah Hall. We don't even need to do the math because two of those people DNF'd. Scott Fable didn't even make it halfway. He had stomach issues. I get an incomplete because I only fielded two athletes who actually finished. No. So you get a you get a failure, John. It's just considered failure. Let's- yeah, I, I I'm the loser. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll have to prove myself again elsewhere. All right. Now in second place with a score of 23 points, Robert Johnson. Oh. Yeah, he's got Emily Sisson second. Uh, so that's two points. Then you had... Oh, actually, I don't think it was 23. Sorry, I'm shortchanging you. Uh, this doesn't change the standings, but it's 21 points. You had Leonard Correa was third, and then Galen Rupp was your third scoring runner in 16th. That's 21 points. Paul Chalimo obviously didn't finish the race. So... Two plus three plus 16 equals 21. The winner, convincingly, with just eight points, Weldon Johnson. He picked Connor Mance second overall. Again, I, I'm kicking myself for this decision. But with, the, with his final pick of the draft, Weldon picked Fiona O'Keefe. He took a gamble, late rounds flyer. Turns out she won the whole damn thing. So... Weldon got the winner in both races, and then for his third spot, he had Zach Panning and Kira D'Amato. Zach Panning was sixth overall, D'Amato DNF. So Weldon wins convincingly, eight points. Robert, second, 21. Jonathan, DNF, or as Robert would say, F. So congratulations to Weldon. You are the champion. Thank you, thank you. It just shows, like our top picks. Like John has an F incomplete. I had, I ended up doing pretty well, but then, and I, I picked Zach Panning with what my, the fifth pick overall, my second pick, and then when I filled out the prediction contest by relay, somehow I didn't put Zach in my top three. I put him fourth. <laughs> like I said, I reserve the right to change my mind. I guess it just shows why they have like ex NFL players always as the color analysts on TV. I always like these guys don't know what they're talking about. I'd rather just have some random Joe Blow who's actually a broadcast professional do it. But Weldon had the inside information, John. He's competed in that event twice. I think he dropped out at least once. So he 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 just you know he knows what it takes to decide no moss and uh, battle through. And we stood no chance, John. Any other thoughts on the Olympic marathon trials? I, I did think it was a great event. There was a lot of hand-wringing beforehand about, oh, my God, Orlando, should they have gotten it over Chattanooga? Is the weather going to be too hot? I think the weather actually – you can't control the weather, but I think the weather actually got turned up to be perfect in terms of picking an Olympic marathon team. Like, this was a warm race, but it wasn't – I wouldn't say it was dangerous. I think if you had temperatures getting into the 80s, then you're talking about dangerous territory. As it turned out, I think it worked out pretty much perfectly because you're stressing some of the same stresses that need, you know, the, some of the same skills that are going to come into play if you're going to run a successful Olympic marathon in Paris. So I think the event turned out pretty well. Uh, and I didn't hear the same sort of complaints about following LA where they had sponges coated in soap and were handing it out as cooling aids. I, I think all things considered, it went pretty smoothly from what I could tell. It was a great event. 
the Orlando Sports Commission or whatever, which decided to bid for it. Great job by them. The track shack people, good job. The one thing possibly they, they, they I'm getting this out there for LA 2020, 2028. If people want to complain about the heat, hold the race later in the day. If people thought it was too high, I've, there's a nice post I did. Forget about the dew point. You guys are talking about the dew point. That's very 20th century. The new thing is the wet bulb globe temperature, not just the wet bulb temperature that k- takes into account the sun. So even at 4 p.m. would be a better start time in terms of cooler. So in L.A., we could run the race at 4 p.m. instead of early in the morning. It could be prime time or you could even run it later. I don't know why you just – I think it would be cool to run a marathon at night. But don't rule out afternoon starts. The temperature is cooler at 4 p.m. wet bulb than at noon. So TV executives think of that for these one-off events. You could have easily run this race at 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, whatever. And you would have had it cooler. So people would, oh, it's, looking at the temperature, like, oh, it's hotter at 4 o'clock than noon usually. But it's not when you factor in the sun and all that stuff. So it, it would have been a better performance, but that's not the point of this race. The point of the race is to mimic the the, the, the Olympics to me. And it's going to be getting warmer as the good day goes on in the Olympics, not cooler. So I was fine with this. I actually think these temperatures were very similar to what you're going to get in Paris. But the scary thing is you didn't know what you were going to get in, in this town. And if they put it at 12 noon, that would have been absolutely idiotic to me. So I, that scares me about USATF that they originally put it at that time. But one thing I don't think we've emphasized enough is like if this had been in Chattanooga, it would have been four degree temperatures. We'd probably have a different Olympic team, but it wouldn't necessarily imitate Paris. I just think that the trials and the Olympic marathon are such different marathons. I mean, I know LA Kipchoge's won it to- twice, but wh- where else do people, you know, run unrabbited warm races? It- it's very rare. In 2028, I'm going to state it right now. The trials had better not be in LA. We don't want to have the Olympic track trials or the Olympic marathon trials in LA. I don't want to hear we need a dry run. I don't want to hear this. The same people are not going to want to go to LA twice. It's like let the some other part of the country get the Olympic fever. So put it in Chattanooga. They got screwed this time. Put it back in Orlando. It was an amazing event. I didn't go into Atlanta. I was doing indoor broadcasting, the Ivy League. But th- the crowd was amazing to be on the thing. And the organization, the pros, they had a boss, the Boston Marathon people that do their core stuff were doing the men's press truck. You know, they were they were super organized. So that was cool. I only do wish the TV. I mean, I, I I do wonder how the TV always screws things up, like how they didn't focus more on that third place men's thing. But please do not put the 2028 trials in LA. We don't. They don't need to run the same damn course. I'm not totally opposed to it. My other thing, the track trials. I don't mind having the 2028 track trials in LA because one, LA, um, so many people live in Southern California that, and you, they're going to have Olympic fever. Okay, some people I think would be willing to go to twice. Would you have okay, track fans flying in? Like, I think that's a big enough deal at Olympic trials for a home Olympics that you would still get a lot of spectator interest in LA for an Olympic trials in LA. I don't think it well, has to be there, but I think it probably will. Yeah, and I'm actually scared they would put it in Eugene, so I'd rather not, I'd rather have it LA. You make a decent point there, John, but they they held the the '96 trials in Atlanta in this cavernous stadium, and it didn't work out well. In terms of attendance. What? 
you went to that meet, right, Weldon? I'm, it's, you guys talk about this all. You're puzzled by this? It was great attendance, no? I can't remember. It was so long ago. Okay. All right. Maybe we don't make any sweeping judgments based on that, then. Okay. Shall we move on to indoor track? I love the trials. I'm sure we'll still be talking about the full out the next couple of weeks. So, you know, there'll be some other storylines. But the track world keeps rolling. We're in the thick of indoor season now. We had New Balance Indoor Grand Prix in Boston on Sunday. I pulled the double. Uh, I saw a few other people there as well. Mary-Kate Shea, Kevin Morris. Um, it's a Boston Marathon elite coordinator and then a top track photographer. They were both there. Emily Sisson, they, New Balance flew her up. She made an appearance, said hello at the meet. That was cool. People got to congratulate her on becoming an Olympian again. So, yeah, New Balance Indoor was on Sunday. And now we've got Milrose this coming Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday. The weekend after that is USA Indoors. Then we get a bye week, or Indoor Heps uh, is in Boston. And then the week after that is World Indoors in Glasgow. So it's pretty much nonstop action. And I thought this trap meet, the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix, I've been going to this meet since 2016, sorry, 2015. This was one of the best editions yet. Noah Lyles runs 644, big PB, wins the 60 meters, defeats Fred Curley. He's pumped. He says he's going to World Indoors now. I mean, he has to make the team, but he wants to go to World Indoors. Hobbs Kessler comes back, spoils Jake Whiteman's... Sorry, Hobbs Kessler wins it, spoils Jake Whiteman's comeback. And then Ellie St. Pierre looked great. She did get out kicked by Jessica Hull, but she almost broke the American record in the 3,000 meters. And Marco Arop almost broke the world record in the 1,000 meters. So a lot of stuff to discuss here. As we talk about the men's 1500 a ton, I think globally, like Noah Lyles winning is probably the biggest headline deal, but this men's 1500 was fascinating. Hobbs Kessler takes it to the 2022 world champion, Jake Whiteman, makes a huge move uh, on the penultimate lap, breaks away, and even though Whiteman closed very well in this race, he had the fastest last lap in the field at 26.36, he underestimated Hobbs Kessler. He never was able to catch him. Kessler wins it, 333.66. Whiteman second, 334.06. Big win for Kessler, and he sets it up for a showdown with Yarnagus at Milrose on Sunday. I guess Whiteman got close at the end, but I, th- I was just super impressed with Hobbs. More so the mindset. I haven't seen this from him. He tried to boss this race. He essentially pulled his act panning. He just took this race by the throat, Early on, said, I don't care who's in it, and just ran away from people. You don't see that much very often anymore. It was like a Jakob Ingebrigtsen or something. I mean, he had a huge gap with, what, 200 to go or something? I just loved the confidence. I mean, now if you, yeah, you want to criticize it, oh, Whiteman's first rate back. He's getting close to him. What's this going to mean? It's still about a 350 mile, and there's talk of him you know, trying to stick with Nagus at Milrose. So <laughs> maybe we don't need to worry about the future next great thing when we have the world's number two miler as an American right now, but the more the merrier. Yeah, I think Whiteman, people talk about rust busters. I think Whiteman actually was rusty in this race because it was his first race in over a year. He ran one indoor race in 2023, January, and that was it. Didn't race the rest of the year with a foot injury. 
And, you know, he said he's been working out pretty well. Training's been going well. But the one thing you can't replicate is the split-second decisions you got to make in track and field. Like when Hobbs Kessler makes an unexpected move with 350 meters to go, do you hop right on it? Or do you give him a little leeway and trust your kick? Whiteman decided to trust his kick, but he let that gap get a little bit too wide. And that's the sort of thing... Jake Mywin's been in a lot of races in his life, but none none recently. And this was kind of a reminder, oh yeah, this is the sort of thing. You know, that's something I'm not worried about Jake Whiteman after this race. He didn't get the Olympic standard, which he wanted, and he did not get the win. So from that aspect, it was kind of a disappointment for him, but it showed me he's still pretty fit. He underestimated Kessler, and he's still if he can stay healthy between now and Paris, I think he's still gonna be in a pretty good spot. But that's not to take away from Hobbs Kessler, who was tremendous and deserved winner. Look, big picture wise, this race was fantastic. A Whiteman's back, healthy. You know, you, you want the Brits to have a well. They got two gold medal contenders, if not warm medal contenders, George Mills and whatnot. But then Kessler's like taking the appropriate steps. He's doing so well. This is like an Alan Webb type talent. And it's kind of scary to compare someone to Alan Webb, but with a different personality, a different coach, they have a long-term plan. I mean, Webb's highs were really high, that Paris Diamond League when he won it. Wasn't that an Olympic year too? But it's 2007. I mean, look at Kessler. 2001, 149. 2022, 146. 2023, 145. It's a nice progression. 1,500, he did have that 334 American Junior record, 2021. 2022, he didn't PR. And I remember when Mary Kane didn't PR, I freaked out. But I, I freak out more on the women's side than the men's. I often say after a big PR, you can kind of stagnate for a year. You get near your PB, it's okay, and then go down. He runs 332 last year and then opens up at 333. This is the second fastest race of his life. Like, I'd be stunned, stunned if he doesn't run at least 330 this year. So you've got him, you've got Hawker, you've got Nagoose, and you've got some other guys. I mean, you got all those Washington guys, Cooper Tier. You know, and this is like the Amby Burfoot idea of picking the team. It would be freaking impossible. You're like splitting hairs between three and four. No. Let them race it out. Taylor Swift, come to Baltimore with her boyfriend and we'll battle the damn Ravens and beat the, beat us. And Robert, you're talking about, you know, letting them race it out at the Olympic trials in June. I'm excited to see some of these guys race it out in two weeks in Albuquerque because Kessler afterwards says he wants to run well indoors. Yara Nagusa said he wants to run well indoors. And... Cole Hawker, I believe, wants to run, wants to run world indoors, and Kubatia might as well. Now, Kubatia may be in the 3K. I don't know if all these guys will do the 1500. Ideally, we would get Kessler, Nagus, and Hawker at least all in the 1500. Only top two make it. That would be fantastic. But it's, pump, it's pumping me up that they're all interested in doing this. And we're going to get Kessler against Nagus in the Want to Make a Mile next week, next week at Milrose. And he said afterwards, I think I'm in 331 shape right now. 
Well, 331, that converts to about a 347 mile. Yara Neguse is trying to break the world record at Milrose, which is 347.01. So I was like, you think you might stick with him? He's like, I view him as my ride, basically. The same way that Neguse used Ingebrigtsen to run 343, I think Hobbs Kessler is planning on using Neguse to run something fast at Milrose. Now, will he be able to hang on? I don't know. And you've also got other good guys in this race, like George Mills, who's a 347-miler, just ran 12.58 for 5K, beat Neguse in that race. He's in the want-to-make-a-mile at Milrose as well. Neil Gurley's in there. It's going to be really exciting, but I'm just, you know, we kind of was like, oh, Yard Neguse is way better than every other American miler last year. And that might still be the case, but oh, come on. who knows? John... You're 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 exaggerating on these conversions. He first of all, he just ran three thirty three six. Yeah. He says he's in three thirty one shape. Well, maybe at BU where it's about two. By the way, my week that was BU is two seconds faster. I think it's probably like a one and a half. They're normal under a track, but a you say three thirty one like a three forty seven mile. Yeah, maybe three thirty one zero zero three thirty one five is equal to three forty eight five. So. You know, there's a big difference between three forty one zero shape and three forty one nine nine shape. But if he's True. in three forty eight if he's in three forty eight five shape and the goose is in three forty seven shape, that's actually a big gap. Fair enough, fair enough. You know, he, he, when Ingebrigtsen's running three twenty eight and these other guys are all coming in at three twenty nine five, you're not even noticing them. They're like fifteen, twenty meters back. I think Nagoose is still favored, but this makes it more interesting, right? If if Nagoose had come out and run the world record at BU and Kessler gets spanked in this race, then we're not really talking about it. Now it's at least like, hey. And well, the other thing is, Kessler's still only 20 years old. This guy is so talented. Like, he's 20 years old. A 20-year-old American just took down a world champion in the 1500 meters. This is a big deal, people. I know it's only February, but that's a great run. Right. Speaking of 20-year-old Americans in the women's 1500, I know there's some ardent Addie Wiley fans. I think you just see how hard it is on the women's side because the top people are so much better. Like Kip Hagan's running 350. Good off the guy. I mean, they just, she and the other Ethiopian just got way, way ahead. Mentally, they were trying to run for the world record. But she's 20. Wiley had run, what, two flat in the 800 the week before? I was kind of thinking this girl had run. Did she break four last year? She did. You know, so for, for me, the 407 was disappointing. And I'm, I'm not going to read too much into it, but not a great opener. I mean, this Kessler opener is amazing to me. I, to me, the first race of the year is really exciting because I want to see where they are. Are they building last year? And when I saw two five for Wiley, I'm like, oh, maybe she's going to be ahead of where she was last year. Well, at least not in the first race, but this Custer race was unreal. And it, there was one interesting thing, John, when you caught up to Wiley post race, you know, you asked her, did you consider leaving Lauren Johnson, which I think she should. I mean, don't want to get into the whole details of that, but she said, well, I wanted to stay with Lauren because, you know, why change it when it, when it's working so well? Well, can we, can, does that mean that's an admission that Lauren coached her last year? Cause last year she was going through the whole charade that the coaches at Huntington were coaching her when I never believed that. And, I think it's an open secret. I mean, I honestly, the way I phrased the question, I said, did you consider cha- making a coaching change? It was already kind of presupposing she'd been coached by Lauren last year because at the 
U.S. championships, another journalist also, I, I saw you with Lauren warming up for the race. You know, people, there were eyewitnesses to this sort of thing. And she just kind of denied it. No, no, she didn't deny it. Last year, she oh, said she, at one of the meets, one of the meets, she said, Lauren's here with my family. She's sitting with my mom. Yeah, but she denied she was being coached by her. Okay, let's move on to the women's 3000. This was a terrific race. Ellie St. Pierre, this was her first track race back after giving birth last March. She had run a couple road races last fall. And she went for it. She does she's a grinder. And I don't think I think she's kind of a reluctant grinder. She wishes her kick was a little better and she didn't have to rely, you know, she could rely on it a little bit more. But Jessica Hall does have a good kick. Going back to college, these two had raced each other. I think Ellie St. Pierre knew. If she was going to win, she needed to break Jessica Hall before the finish line. She couldn't quite do it, uh, but she holds on to run 825.25. That's only two-tenths of a second off of the American record by Alicia Monson. And Jessica Hall wins it, 824.93, Australian record. She gets the win. And if you're Ellie St. Pierre, the I mean, first of all, you can't be that you can't be unhappy with this. This was a great run for her, a big PB, her first race back, race back from pregnancy. She says she felt she feels stronger now aerobically than she did before giving birth. So she's clearly going to be a major factor this season. But the one thing, you know, her weakness before she had the baby was she doesn't have the strongest kick for a 1500 meter runner. She still won the Olympic trials in 2021 that way, but against some of the more speed oriented women in this event she needs to be able to drop them she couldn't quite do that at jessica hall so that's something she needs to continue working on but i mean this was a fantastic race uh, almost breaking the american record running a big pb your first time back I, I thought it was um great to see her running well again b minus john it's a joke yeah a plus b minus on the rojo scale yeah i was shocked because Flipped it on. I saw the lights. Wasn't watching the full race. Like from the get go, I didn't have sound. I was doing with my kid, and I'm like, "What are those lights? What what light? Could, what record could they possibly challenge?" And then as it got closer, I was like, "Wow, I think that's the American record." And she almost got it. First race back, essentially first track race since the baby. Guys, the limit. It was amazing. It's great to see her back. Better than ever after the pregnancy. And I will remind you, the 3000 is like her wheelhouse. I mean, she she won world in, won silver medal in the World Indoors two years ago. And third place in that event wasn't exactly chopped liver. It was as Yayu Taye, who got a medal in 10,000 this year on the track. She beat Daiwit Sayam. She beat Jessica Hull. She beat Alicia Monson. Beatrice Chabet. I mean. She beat Beatrice Chabet? Well, Beatrice Chabat was only 10th in that race. Okay. She must have been like, but she's improved a lot then. That was just an awful race for her because Beatrice Chabat is, a, she, I mean, she should probably won that race, right? Given how good she is now. Well, yeah, but look at the number of medalists in it. So, you're like, oh, everyone doesn't go to World Indoors. Well, probably three or four global outdoor medalists were in that damn race and she got second. Eventual and outdoor medalist. So, Cool to her. Did she mention any world indoors, John? Or? Yeah, I think she wants to go. I, I think probably in the 3000 again. Um, so that was good to, see, to hear from her as well. 
and the three women behind her, all of them, they ran the first, second, and third fastest world under 20 indoor times in the 3000 ever. They're all Ethiopian teenagers. Melknot Wudu, 832. Medina Issa, 832. Seneyat Gedichu, 832. So, yeah, I'm saying like, the thing is, I, I was saying, oh, Ellie St. Pierre against some of the f- pure 1500 runners, you know, she might be a little vulnerable in a kick, but move up to 3000. I mean, yeah, she got out kicked by just Gall is really good, but, you know, she medaled in 2022. Your kick suddenly isn't quite as bad if you're a 1500 woman kicking against 3K as opposed to, you know, kicking against 815 women in the shorter event. Okay. Let's talk about Noah Lyles. I was. One, very excited that him and Fred Curley were lining up against this race. Robert put it very well in our recap. We had the last two world champions in the men's 100 meters running a 60 against each other on the first weekend of February. And guess what? Like, their legs didn't fall off. They both ran the race. It was fine. Like, you got big, big time stars like Fred Curley and Noah Lyles, two of the biggest stars in the world of track and field. They raced each other. It can happen, people. We can do this. So, yeah, it was awesome to see. Curly, this was his first indoor 60 ever. So he obviously ran a PB. He was fourth in 6.55. Akeem Blake of Jamaica was second, 6.45. He got the best start. You know, he looked like he was going to win it. But Noah Lyles, for the third year in a row, wins this meet. And gets a personal best. He came from behind a big personal best, in fact. He ran 6.51 here last time in 2023. Goes on to win triple gold at the World Championships in Budapest. One year later, 6.44 for the win. And afterwards, he was on cloud nine. He was like, this went better than I could have hoped. I didn't see any of the signs of this coming in practice. Like He, he was really pumped. Said afterwards, he wants to run World Indoors. He's like, it's the only team I haven't made. We'll see if that happens. Like last time he ran USA indoors, he ended up scratching from the final, felt something in his leg. Like, you know, things could change in the next month. But I like these thinking about it. His thinking is like, look, I don't have to change my schedule to run world indoors. I can, if things keep going well, I'll have it, you know, I'll run the race that weekend and I'll, I'll do it. If he has any sort of setbacks, he's not, he's going to pull out, but Right now, there's no setbacks. Right now, things are going as good as expected, so he's going to try to keep the momentum going, which I love. So we will see him at the U.S. Championships in Albuquerque in two weeks, and he'll be going up against the world record holder, Christian Coleman. So I can't wait to see that. He's just great for the sport. He, he loves to compete. He was so pumped. And uh, Curley was pissed. I, I don't know why Curley thought he'd be – I mean, this is a – Fred Curley, I'll remind you, he used to be a 400-meter runner. He's pissed that the guy that giant is not good at the 60. And, you know, he didn't talk to the media afterwards, but I think it's great that they're both there. Great to see Noah exciting, excited and, and, and to see this win. Now, Noah's talked about some world records and I put this in the week that was, I was like, well, what would Bolt run in a 60? But Bolt never ran indoors, but I found a thread on Let's Run. It's been estimated that Bolt ran 6.29 in the 60 during his 9.58 world record. Now that was wind aided. So you factor in the wind. That's like a 6.31. So Noah is, you know, point one three behind that. Well, it's behind 60. peak Bolt in his greatest ever race, I think it's a little bit unfair of comparison. This was a February, you know, de facto season opener. He ran a soft open last week. It's still interesting to me that Bolt, because he's not a good starter. People said he wouldn't make it the sixty. That he's got the best sixty ever. You know, that just shows you how good his world records are. 
Yeah, well, that was one yeah. thing Lyle said after the race. He's like, I want four world titles this year or four gold medals. If I don't get that, I want three world, world records. I'm like, you really think you can break 958? He's like, well, why couldn't I? I just took off 0.07 in my 60 PB. Um, I'm pointing, I'm like, yeah, that's a long way to go. And 100 is PB is 9.83. He's never shown anything close to 9.58. But he was yeah, basically yeah. like, look, <laughs> the sky is the limit. Like, he's like, I'm going to set my goals high. And if I don't get them, I'm still going to run something pretty good. I can get them behind that logic. He's not going to break the 100 meter world record, but I have no problem with the world's best sprinter aiming high. So I, I don't have any issues with that. I mean, 700s and a 60 gets you to 11.116 and the 100 if you do the same ratio. So still a long ways away from 9.58. But can we say something about these yellow gold Adidas uniforms that he was wearing? I love them. I mean, Nike in the past has put their world champions in gold, but it was obvious what Adidas was doing because Noah was in it. Marco Arop was in it. Grant Hall was in it. I just loved it. It reminds me of the... You know, let's run gold on my t-shirts. By the way, if you need a let's run t-shirt, go to shop.letsrun.com today. They are so soft. I recommend the long sleeve one. Get your wife or husband one. They'll sleep in them nonstop. They'll never take them off. They'll just want to stay in bed all day. And what you do in bed is up to you. It reminds me, I got a plug from someone at the party raving about the shirts. I'm going to find it. I'm going to play it at the end. This will be good because I'll have it now saved for future podcasts. By the way, did you guys see what I was wearing on my press truck? Despite being Orlando, I wore the one of the, you know, the one of two prototypes of the let's run yellow beanie, which hopes to be made by the end of the year. It's not, but I, so I could be recognizable on the truck. It was like, where's Waldo? But I saw famed podiatrist Brian Fulham out on the course. It worked well because I think some people were like looking on the thread. I said, hey, I'm wearing a yellow beanie. And then they could yell at me. It's good guerrilla marketing for Let's Run as well if you're popping up and seeing people, uh, you know, people seeing. One, one other thing, John, I, I didn't read, you know, I was kind of like Weldon. I was doing childcare and watching the meet on mute. And then I helped you with the recap. But I think there was something we left out of the recap. How did Sydney McLaughlin, New Balance star Sydney McLaughlin or Ravoni do at the at her namesake meet. Yeah, she wasn't there. I mean, part of me is like, okay, they finally just, you know, gave up trying to promote her appearances because she would show up and she would either withdraw or she would run the 60 in the, the prelims of the 60 and kind of go through the motions and or the 60 hurdles and she wouldn't even be running during the main broadcast. So I actually don't mind it if, She's not showing up and going to race seriously. Just don't even promote her ahead of time. So it is, I mean, it's kind of weird. She is, it's an Olympic year and she's one of the biggest stars in the sport. And this is New Balance's main meet, but it's not weird because of everything we've seen from Sydney the last couple of years. She doesn't particularly enjoy racing. So yeah, she wasn't there. Well, Lyle loves to race, as does Sydney's big rival, Femke Bull. She opened up in, um, Mets, France, over the weekend. And this girl just keeps getting better and better. I mean, it's amazing, right? Like, it used to be, oh, she's a good herder, but she's way behind Sydney. She'll never beat her. She's not fast enough. Fast forward a couple years. 
She never even broken 50 in the quarter. Now she's the world record holder in the indoor 400 at like 49.2 or something like that. Well, she just opened up in 49.69, came back an hour later, ran a national record outdoor outright PR of 22.64 in the 200. And she's, you know, it's hard to compare everything, but it's 0.27 of a second. It's 27 hundredths of a second faster than when she opened up in last year when she ran her and eventually ran 49.26. And again, I, I did the math. Like she's already run. 5145. Take a quarter second off that and you're at 5120. Like, do we think Sydney can just go through the motions and run 5120? I don't. Sydney had better be on her A game if she wants to win the gold medal this summer. Okay, one other thing, Robert, we, we talked about Lyles. Are you worried at all? This was his best opener ever, 644. He's in. Great shape right now, fitter than he was this time last year when he won triple gold. Does this change your thinking at all? Are you worried he might actually win the Olympic gold medal this summer as you have long predicted he won't? I famously predicted after Tokyo that he missed his opportunity. COVID cost him the 2020 gold. He, he was on antidepressants. There was no fans in 2021. He didn't do it. And my thought process was you've got these young guys like Arian Knighton and – uh Let's see Bogo. Like, good luck beating them. It certainly looks like he's going to win an Olympic gold right now. And I was thinking about it over the weekend because I was really hoping that 208.10 was not going to happen. I wanted my prediction to come true on that. I didn't want to give out $1,000 to Scott Fobble. But, like, no, it, I don't know. It, it, it used to be a little bit forced to me, a little bit fake. Like, um, I thought he was trying too hard to be a showman. Now I just love it. It seems like he's really happy. He loves competing. And I'm like, how can I root against this guy? So, yes, I'm worried. I'm worried my prediction is going to be wrong. But guess what? Then that means America got a gold medal. So it's not too wrong. And this guy that is a natural showman, has great charisma, is good for the port. So, Noah, either way, it's a win-win for me. I'll say, oh, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Oh, wow. February. I'm I'm a genius. February 6th, Robert is already finding ways to make excuses for his prediction no, to be wrong. No, Well, because it's kind of sick. I was thinking about this. I'm like, okay, he looks really good right now. But no, I wish that Tobogo was like in the U.S. training. If he was doing that, I think he might beat Lyles. And I'm still not ruling out um, Knighton. But I'm like, I'm not going to root for Noah Lyles to get hurt. Like, go to, oh yeah, let's go to World Indoors. That really helps Rojo's theory. Let's go to World Indoors and he pulls a muscle. That would be bad because then no one ever do World Indoors forever. So, um, yeah, he's looking great right now. Okay. I think we I think we need to make this a recurring segment. One of my favorite podcasts, Bill Simmons' podcast, back in the early days, he would have a recurring segment. He was a Red Sox fan. His buddy Jacko is a Yankees fan. He'd call up his friend Jacko and say, how worried are you, Jack, Jack about – Johnny, are you worried about the Yankees you know, losing the division, basically? I think this is going to be my new segment – Robert, how worried are you about Noah Lyles proving you wrong? So right now, February 6th, scale of 1 to 10, how worried are you about Noah Lyles proving you wrong and winning Olympic gold? It's about a 6. Creeping up to 7. But the fact, I didn't know this. You said that he said nothing indicated this in practice. That made me feel good. I thought, well, see. Well, 
He said that, but then he also said Ralph Mann came by and did some testing, and my numbers were ahead of where they were before the World Championships in Budapest last year. I'm like, that to me sounds like something indicated it. Like maybe it wasn't how he was feeling, but he's like, yeah, the numbers were very good. So maybe there was something indicated. Can I just say, totally change before go back to the Olympic marathon trials? Because there was two things I wanted to say. I just totally forgot. My Robert, we make the, the rules on this podcast. So go ahead. Yeah. You know, Weldon can always go stitch this back if he wants to. One thing about panning I was thinking about was if you're going to make that move, and John Kellogg, what do you think about this? Instead of running like a 448 and just slamming it at 445, maybe you need to run like a 435, break the field, and try to totally, truly solo it so that the other guys can't run in your slipstream. Because then they're going to have to, then, then the aerodynamics aspect of it is gone. It's you against them. What do you mean the aerodynamics aspect's gone? Either way, he's going to be leading. He's not reducing the, the load of the, the wind. No, he's got the same load that he has otherwise. But Clayton Young and Connor Mantar aren't sitting right behind him, get benefiting to the tune of five seconds a mile. But they're not the reason he didn't make the team. What do you mean? They're not the reason he didn't make the team. He could have finished third. But they got to sit on him and, and benefit to the tune of five to six seconds a mile for, for 15 miles. So that's 75 seconds a mile that they benefited from. They might have benefited from it, but Wes, he's not going to get a benefit. He He's not going to pick up that time by drafting on someone else. I'm just saying he's not picking up the time. But everybody else has to work way harder. And he, if you add 75 seconds to, to um, Clayton Young's time... Also, there's absolutely no way in hell they benefited 75 seconds worth of drafting off Zach Panning in this race. You calculated this back-of-the-envelope prediction based on comparing Kipchoge in Berlin to Kipchoge in Vienna for the Ineos Challenge. Vienna, he had a literal phalanx. He had five guys in front, two behind. They were doing laser precise no, pacing. No, no. And you didn't account for any of the other factors apart from the bottle being handed off. Like, they did all this other optimization stuff. Clayton Young was running near Zach Panning in his slipstream for a little bit. There's no way his benefit was not close to 75 seconds of drafting in that race. If you haven't read the week that was, I said that drafting behind somebody is five to six seconds a mile, and then I tried to justify it by using calculations from Kipchoge. Actually, the five to six seconds a mile just came from John Kellogg's mouth. He's like, if you're running a track race behind one or two people, it's worth five to six seconds a mile. The failings of seven pa- of seven people should be more, I would think, to be honest. So I think Kipchoge underachieved actually in, in that 159.40. But I'm going to stand by it. The second comment I have I had to make is our, my text message of the week. This is from supporters club member Ross McGowan. Emma Bates must have had a rough day seeing a total rando get third, who was two minutes back of Sisson. I agree. Like, Weldon said this to me. Like, if you even dropped out of this race, like D'Amato or something, you're like, they were staggering home. You've got to think you were able to do that. It's probably worse for Bates because she didn't get to run the race. At least D'Amato tried to run the race. Oh, absolutely. We say this all the time. The Olympics... Okay, you have to be really, really good, obviously, to make the Olympics. But timing can be a huge deal. Chris Linsky had his career year in 2010. If he had it in 2012, Olympic medal. Instead, he doesn't. He never gets to say he's an Olympian. And look at Clayton Young. 
one year ago, like if you go back to February 6th, 2023, he's not even in the conversation to make this team. He's about to have knee surgery. No one is talking about him. 2024, he's in the shape of his life. He runs the race of his life to make it. Ed Eystone even pointed out, he told me after the race, he's like, Connor Mann's got COVID the week after the Chicago Marathon. Like, if he gets COVID one, now, he might have gotten it, like, in Chicago because he's around more people. But if he had gotten it one week earlier and doesn't run that time, oh, suddenly the U.S. only has one Olympic spot unlocked in Chicago, and he's not a 207 guy. So timing, especially when you've got the Olympic Marathon trials as a one-shot deal, is everything. The timing did not work out well for Molly Seidel or Emma Bates, unfortunately. It worked out perfectly for Dakota Lindworm and for Clayton Young. So, and then you've got people like Mance and Sisson, who I don't think the timing was as big a deal. They're probably going to make it. No. You know. Yeah, but the, the Seidel benefited from the Olympics being postponed a year last time. Yeah. And what, I mean, think about Yaki Pingerbertson. Does anyone think he would have won Olympic gold? Would he be, would, would he be the obsession of let's run? He, he, the, would have, he wouldn't have won Olympic gold in 2020, yeah, would he? I, no, think about it this way, Robert. I think Chariot probably would have been the would have won gold in 2020. If Jakob, if the Olympics hadn't been postponed, he might have gone like second to Chariot because that was what was happening in all the Diamond Leagues up until the 2021 Olympics. And now maybe the same thing would have happened because Chariot was the guy who would lead and Jakob drafted off of him. But could you imagine if Jakob hadn't won that Olympic gold, what the narrative around him would be like? It would be like, this guy can't win the big one. He always gets beaten in the big stage. Instead, like he wins the Olympic gold basically right out of the gate. So that's always the trump card. People like, he can't win a championship race. He always gets beat by the Brits. He can just say, I won the Olympics at age 20, you know, suck on it. But, you know, that that narrative, that counterfactual doesn't exist. He is an Olympic champion. He'll always be an Olympic champion. But the way the women's race played out, what if somebody... A little more credential to try to pull off a Jessica McLean strategy. She's the former Jessica Tan. Got fourth place. She came out with a 229 PB. She ran 225.46. She went out with the second pack. Who knows? Maybe in the third pack. I mean, 72.38 halfway. So she slowed down the second half a little bit, but. Yeah, what if, you know, Sarah, Sarah Hall, somebody else just backed off slightly early, said, this is too hot, or even Kira D'Amato said, this is too hot. I'm just going to have to think, don't go for the win, just back off. Maybe some of these people are going to blow up. I mean, it, it's like the, can you backdoor? Oh, man, that would just be a crazy way to make the Olympic team. That's like what. That's what makes marathoning so compelling and the strategy so interesting, Weldon, because it takes so much discipline and you're also taking a risk that some of these people are going to die. If you're holding back, you're saying, I think they've got it wrong. I think they're pacing themselves incorrectly and I'm pacing myself the best way to get to the finish line as fast as possible. But that's hard for people to do to just take a step back and say, those are the Olympic spots running away from me. And if I let them go, I might never catch them. That's what makes this the marathon such a a war and such a grind and so difficult to master because you have to be confident in yourself and you have to trust you've assessed things correctly. And yeah, it's interesting because also now the marathon has become so much more aggressive recently. This was a flat course. People went for it. But hey, 
It was a good day for the supporters club. Rojo before the race. This wasn't on the regular podcast. Scott Fable with the pre-race press conference guaranteed that the top three were going to go sub 208.10. And Rojo said, Rojo wasn't even there. And he said, I guarantee it doesn't happen. I'll pay Scott Fable $1,000. If the top three aren't under 208.10. Well, none of them ended up making it. Sure looked close, but the marathon distance won out. And then afterwards, we haven't acknowledged it. Supporters Club member Eric Hawkins presented the silver medal. Tim Lee Sisson. We've done it. We've made the podium. After 25 years of striving at Let'sRun.com, we've made the podium. So congrats to everyone. There's different paths to the podium, John. Who would have thought Dakota Lundrum would have made it? For the rest of us, you know, we have to get executive jobs and become sponsors of the Olympic trials. That's probably the more the more common way to get anywhere near a podium at the Olympic marathon trials, and that's why we love it. 48 years after Yale's Frank Shorter was on the Olympic marathon podium. Let's run supporters club member, Eric Hawkins, Yale grad attendant. By the way, speaking of Frank Shorter, I asked John Kellogg, Walden's former coach, our stat coaching guru, hey, what'd you think of the trials? First words out of his mouth were, Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers could have done that. He thinks that Frank, I mean, obviously Frank, I think you know, in 1972 Olympic champion, 76 silver medalist, really should have won the gold in both because the guy beat him in 76 was a doper. I mean, I guess some, maybe people think, oh, he's an Olympic gold medalist. Of course he's better than him. I think most people think, no, they were way slower back then. But John's like 210 on that course? Or 209. But John's like, I think he could run 210 on that course, definitely, in those conditions. And then he's like, I give him the super shoes. That's going to be faster than 209. Yeah, I don't think that, I don't think he's wrong. Uh, shorter again, Olympic champion Bill Bill Rogers. Looking at his results, he ran two hundred nine fifty five to win Boston in nineteen seventy five. Two ten ten in New York twenty in nineteen seventy six to win that race. Two ten thirteen in Boston to win in seventy eight. Two hundred nine twenty seven to win Boston in seventy nine. Yeah, put him in the super shoes. I I think he could have done that. I I, I agree with him. Now he did say. Shorter couldn't run with Peak Rupp. I mean, I think Peak Rupp's better than those guys. So, better than the guys we saw on Saturday. Shorter versus in the Super Shoes versus Peak Rupp, I'd be interested to see it. Now, for Rupp, is he just declining because he's third? Or is it Alberto Salazar has been banned from life? That's good he is. I think it's the former. He's also had a number of injuries in recent years. A lot of people, they get old, they get more injury prone. They're not able to train at the same high level and their results suffer. And I think that's that's the simplest explanation for me for why Galen has declined a little bit the last few years. But I obviously, his Alberto was banned four years for anti-doping rules violations. So. Rob, Rob did run 206.35 in 2021. That's near his PB. Just yeah. three years ago. What's, con- what's disconcerting to me for Galen is I expected him to take a step forward from Chicago. You know? And to me, this was a step back. Agreed. And I don't, I think you made a good point on the 
post-race podcast, we've seen people miss the team and come back. Huge talents like Abdi Abdurrahman, Meb Kofleski. Like, it would not stun me if Galen Rupp at age 41 makes the 2028 Olympic team. But, yeah, he, he moved in the wrong direction after Chicago. With Alberto Salazar as his coach, right, Sean? Oh, my God. That would be a wild storyline. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, you mentioned Eric Hawkins presenting a medal. Did you guys see Max Siegel at that ceremony? Because someone reached out to me. They're like, I was around the finish line on Sunday, on Saturday in Orlando. I didn't see Max Siegel anywhere. I know he was in town that weekend because he gave, he spoke at the press conference on Friday. He was at some of the stuff, but it, it's kind of weird that the CEO of USATF wouldn't be at this awards ceremony where they're honoring the Olympians. You guys are actually at the ceremony. I was inside the media tent. Did you guys see Max Siegel at all on race day? I wasn't actively looking for him, but I haven't heard anyone who's seen him at the award ceremony, but you think Max Siegel goes to the race walk ceremony, John? If he's specifically in the city where they're having the trials, I, I would think you, that's kind of one of the things, right? You're in, you're the CEO of USATF, you're at the race, like, you kind of go to the finish, right? I mean, he might have been in one of the VIP areas and I just didn't see him, but I feel like, you know, that public award ceremony would have made sense for him to be there. If all these other people are handing out awards and stuff, I don't know. That's just... So, someone reached out to me and thought it was odd, and I, I kind of agree if that was the case. But I wasn't scoping out for him, so maybe he was there. Was there a NASCAR race maybe. that he needed to attend? I think Daytona 500 is coming up in a couple weeks, so probably wasn't at that one. Um, when you, were good, you were talking about award ceremonies. I don't know if you saw this, John. You probably didn't because you were at the doing interviews at the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. But take a look at what I put up on the screen behind me. Did you see the, the, the end of the women's 1500? I've never seen anything like this. Gudolf Sagai wins the race. They put out the New Balance tape. And it, it like didn't, she didn't break the tape. It like almost like knocked her down and strangled her. And she was justifiably irate afterwards. And I don't know, like, do they normally hold, it's a roll of tape, it looked like, and it looked like it's plastic and unbreakable. So I guess you don't normally break the tape. They normally just drop it. And for some reason, this volunteer didn't know to drop it. Or does the tape actually normally break? And for some reason, it didn't in this case. It some was- tapes break, but I think generally the volunteers just drop the tape. Uh, this one didn't. Gudoff, I... I mean, her English isn't amazing. I did ask her about it briefly, and she just said the tape felt very hard. You know, normally tapes are softer. She's broken a bunch of them. This is just further evidence. Eliminate all finish line tapes. No, I love track races, line Especially tape. indoor. Indoor races do not need finish line tapes. It leads to more harm than good. You're getting a little sponsor exposure, but New Balance, there's, New Balance already has their logo all over this meet. I hate the finish line tapes for indoor races. John obviously will never get a job in the sport that pays money, good money, marketing jobs. John, every photo has a picture of the finish. Like, obviously, you want your logo there. I mean, th- those things aren't going away. I get, uh, I don't know. I love the finishing tape, just not when it's not properly done. I, I like it at races. I like it at road races. I mean, I think it's fantastic for those. But yeah, all right. One other thing. So. This is a long episode, but we had a lot to discuss. 
we need to talk about this. We have a leader for doping ban of the year. It's Michael Saruni, former NCAA champion at UTEP, Kenyan Olympian in 2021, former training partner with Emmanuel Correa, who's the reigning Olympic champion. I don't know how I don't know if they were still working together a couple of years ago or what. Anyway, he was suspended last year provisionally for evading a sub a test at the 2022 Kenyan Championships. The details only emerged last week. They're wild. Essentially what happens, Saruni shows up for the Kenyan World Championship trials in 2022 in Nairobi. Doesn't run that well. Doping control officer comes up to him afterwards, says, are you Michael Saruni? You know, he says, yes. They, he says, all right, the doping control officer is a woman. She said, okay, you're going to need to provide his jug sample. So he's like, fine. He tries to tell her like, oh, I got COVID last week. She's like, all right, we'll, we'll make a note of it. And they walk over to the sample collection area. And then he starts coughing a lot. And ducks it, run, basically runs into the bathroom in a violent fit of coughing. She follows him in. I commend her doggedness on this. She follows him into the men's bathroom and then calls for backup. She's like, I need another man in here. He's in the men's bathroom. And then what happens is two people emerge from the stalls. I wasn't sure if it was the same stall or if it was an adjacent stall or something. And one of them was dressed very similarly to Saruni. And these two people both kind of make a run for it. One of them runs off and hops a fence, escapes the stadium. Another one of them runs a little bit, but the doping control officers follow him. He drops some money, goes to pick it up, and they kind of get him. They bring him in to like police for questioning. They're like, who are you? And he gives one name, and it's like a fake name. And it turns out he's a different guy entirely. But you know, it's neither of these people are Michael Saruni. Michael Saruni, they think, is the person who hopped the fence. This whole thing goes to court. Saruni is claiming he was never contacted. He's like, you got the wrong person. No one ever came up to me. Like, you confused me with someone else. But the anti-doping agency of Kenya doesn't buy it at all. They're like, no, you tried to switch identities with a guy in the men's bathroom. You ran away. You refused to be tested. That's a four-year ban. And they upheld him. So he's now banned until 2027. But one of the wildest attempts to evade a doping test I can ever recall seeing. I don't understand. So did he just randomly find this guy in the bathroom? No, it, it seems to have been more orchest- an orchestrated scheme because one of the things that happened was before he went to the bathroom, he met with a couple of his friends. He was talking to a couple people and saying some things, but also he had paid this person 70,000 Kenyan shillings, which is about $436. And how do they know, how do they know that? There was like a, record of the transfer or something i don't know they had they they realized this and his explanation was well he didn't have access to his phone and he needed his friend to get this money so he could pay his hotel bills it's all kind of concocted silly but my analysis is he knew this guy it was a friend of his he told him hey if i'm if i am tested i'm going to need your help he paid him seventy thousand shillings and it ended up totally backfiring and he got caught. But it does seem like this was a 
no, like maybe it was something they were working up on the fly, but I don't think he got in the bathroom and then just asked the guy in the next stall to take his identity. The odds of getting away with this, I would think, are less than the odds of just even if you were on drugs, paying the cop and hoping it doesn't come back positive, right? Like, like did he just shoot up a drug? Like in the last, I mean, the, the window on these drugs isn't very long. Like, seems crazy to me. Well, the, the interesting. I thing do, about- I do, I, I, I do like the excuse though. Prove, prove it that you talked to me. Did he? Yeah, get my ID? A, he's basically like. You didn't take a picture of me. You didn't ask me for my ID. It's like, you're Michael Serini. They showed you on the screen. She f- Googled your face. She's like, oh, that wasn't sufficient enough. I'm like, how? maybe pro athletes who are drug tested, but like, I'm pretty sure after you finish the U.S. championships, you are, they don't take a picture of you to prove that well, they've got the right person for testing. I feel like that's a bit absurd, but I do what think- if I was mad at, what, what, what if I was mad at Weldon? I'm sitting there, you know, in the stands and- they come up to me and say, are you Weldon Johnson? And I say, yes, I am. And I purposely took drugs, go into the bathroom, piss positive, and then he's, then he's banned. Well, that would involve the person have, in question having an identical twin. Um, but And you also wouldn't be wearing a singlet or anything. like. You know, the, the thing is, what fell apart here is the DCO. I give them credit here. People are saying, oh, they don't test at all in Kenya. It's total mess. Like. This was a committed de- doping control offer and a team of committed doping control offers that actually got their man in the end. And I think you're hoping, like, if I just run in there and I tell them I have COVID and I'm running into the bathroom and I'm coughing violently, the female doping control officer is not going to follow me in. And then I'll be able to escape somehow. But and I don't that's understand. Not, that's if not you escape, happened. you don't get off. Like, did this guy look enough at him when the other guy comes out? She's going to be like, oh, you're Michael Cerrone? I think he was dressed similarly. I don't know how much he looked like him. but Wow. He's relying on a racist trope and racist stereotype. Even in Kenya, they say it's true, I guess. But this whole thing, like, almost everything about this scream, like, I do try to give people some benefit of the doubt. Like, I don't think, but in this case, I'm like, I'm not giving Serena enemy benefit of the doubt. Cause I'm looking at the facts of the case. And I'm looking at the testimony from all the doping control officers. And also his basic thing is like, no one ever came up to me after the race. She clearly positively ID'd him and came up and asked for a sample. And he's, he tried to delay this, postpone the hearing. Like, that's time why, after time after time they, they didn't have a hearing for this until like april 2023 which is almost a year after it actually happened now he's provisionally suspended the whole time so i don't really see how it benefits him to draw this thing out but they finally had a hearing and they found him guilty as they should have utep's drug record is pretty bad man yeah blessing okay bar eight who's at the center of this eric lira controversy she was from you she ran at utep Eric Lira, former UTEP sprinter, the one who supplied her. Saruni, UTEP. Toby Amasan, who is currently cleared to compete. She actually ran in Boston over the weekend. She ran at UTEP, but the AIU is appealing her whereabouts failures case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. So that's still pending. She didn't want to talk about it when we asked her at the meet in Boston. Um, but yeah, you, you, recent years, it has not looked great for UTEP track and field alums. 
All right, I think we should get out of here. I have an update about our request for Dakota Lindworm to join the podcast. Dakota is currently on vacation with her boyfriend, who I believe his name is Montana, right, John? Yes, her name's Dakota. Her boyfriend's name's Montana, and she's from Minnesota. So, like I said, she's got basically all the upper Midwest covered there. And she doesn't have her laptop with her. Good for her. They're just relaxing. She'll be back on Sunday. Available on Monday, February 12th. At any time that works for you. Well, I don't want to get in the way of their, like, Valentine's Day preparations at that point. I mean, I guess she's the woman. She doesn't have to go all out. The guy's got to go all out. He's now dating an Olympian. Dude, do not blow this. All right, guys. Well, that was it. We didn't even talk about the Milrose games other than the mile with Nagus uh, versus Kessler and George Mills and those guys. It's going to be a great meet. We'll we'll be there on Super Bowl Sunday. Still working. Still going to be churning out content. It's going to be a fun time in New York. We'll have a Friday 15 preview for you on Friday. The meet's on Sunday afternoon from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern. The two miles is going to be incredible. Josh Kerr, uh, Cole Hawker, Cooper Tier, Grant Fisher. It's absolutely loaded. So can't wait to discuss all of those races. Yeah, Milrose is amazing. If you don't have a ticket, you need to get one. But also, you need to go to the New York Historical Society for Milrose. Or after, by February 25th, the, the Running for Civil Rights, the New York Pioneer Club exhibit. Up next, they talk with Gary Corbett, the son of Ted Corbett, who many call the father of American long distance. Really cool story, the Pioneer Club. And just track and field history. Gary knows so much. I said he's going to become an annual guest on the podcast because we touched some of it. But listen to that next and check out the exhibit by February 25th. We're joined by Gary Corbett. He's a running historian, a Let's Run.com contest winner. He won our world prediction contest. His dad, Ted Corbett, sometimes called the father of American long distance. So I'm not sure if that makes Gary the son of American long distance, but he's joining us today because there's a cool exhibit at the New York Historical Society through February 25th. If you're going to New York for Rose, you need to go to New York for Rose and then head up to the Historical Society to see this. It's called Running for Civil Rights, the New York Pioneer Club. 1936 to 1976 and well Gary can tell us a little more about the New York Pioneer Club but first I want to give a brief overview of Gary's dad because Ted was a pretty amazing guy Ted was is called as I said the father of American long distance or the spiritual elder of the modern running clan he was a true pioneer of the sport his running accomplishments in themselves were vast the 1952 US Olympian in the marathon first black American to represent the U.S. in the marathon. An ultra-running pioneer, he held American records up to 100 miles. Just talking to Gary, he ran up over 300 miles a week on multiple occasions. But Ted might be most known for his administrative roles in the sport. And his obituary, which we posted on Let's Run, was self-written. He said, in addition to training extensive mileage, I spent years doing administrative stuff in the background to help our sports survive and grow. 
As I said, he was a member of the Pioneer Club in New York, but he was also the co-founder, first president of the New York Roadrunners. He was a pioneer in course measuring. And I think this is something he doesn't get enough credit for, but I've seen in the last six months, he is getting more credit for this. He came up with the idea of a five-borough race in New York City that is now the New York City Marathon. And Gary, I feel like Ted's starting to get more and more credit. The six-mile loop, probably the most famed six-mile loop in the world, the most run loop in the world in Central Park is now called the Ted Corbett Loop. But Gary, thanks for joining us to just talk about, one, this exhibit in New York this week, but also a little bit about your dad. I was saying we need to have you on for a longer talk about your dad because every time I talk to you, it's it's fascinating. But thank you. Well, it's uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for all the work you do to champion uh, that you both do to champion our sport. Um, I had a unique view. I was I was ten years old in 1961, and uh, so I witnessed the evolution of the sport. So many of the innovations occurred uh, in New York with the leadership of New York Roadrunners Club, it was then called Roadrunners Club New York Association. Uh, so I was at all the races. Uh, I saw it all evolve, and that's that's motivated me to uh, work as hard as I have. That these individuals are never forgotten, but unfortunately, uh, they have been. The New York Pioneer Club story, which is being highlighted at the New York Historical Society has been missed by so many. This, this is a, a black running club, black running organization started in 1936, uh, that in 1942 became integrated during Jim Crow era. So you have an integrated team, not the first integrated team, but the first large-scale uh, integrated uh, running team uh, that predated the integration professional sport by quite a few years. Uh, it was a home for Jewish athletes. Uh, and Joe Yancey, the co-founder and coach, brought a culture of inclusiveness. Um, you could be the slowest person on the track, but you were welcome to the Pioneer Club, and uh, Joe will work with you. This inclusive culture is what the sport enjoys today. Uh, Pam, Pam Cooper Jenkins, who wrote the book, The American Marathon, has said it best. It, uh, the world owes a debt of gratitude to Pioneer Club for bringing this culture to the where all abilities are welcome. Uh, you know, back, back in the day of, of my father in the fifties and sixties, everybody ran fast there. I looked recently at a four-mile race. The uh, last place finisher was Alan Steinfeld, became president here for a race. Uh, but he's running on a seven-minute pace, and most everybody was on the six-minute pace. That's that's how the sport was. But again, the culture of the New York Pioneer Club was that everybody was welcome. And the contrast is, is with the New York AC. At that time, uh, they were raw. Uh, they only took the two very top top elite runners. Uh, they did not allow black to the to the uh, club. Did not allow Jewish athletes to the club. So it was uh, that's then the contrast. New York AC is a different 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 body now. But back then, uh, it was not a good good story there at all. Uh, so you you have this. There would not have been a New York Roadrunners Club in 1958 without the New York Pioneer Club. My father's teammate John Sterner. 
co-founder and was really the leader in getting it started. He called on my father to, to be the uh, president because my father had the name recognition, being an Olympian and national champion a couple of times. Um, so, and, and the membership was 47 members, the first roster, and, and nearly half were New York Pioneer Club members. So there would not have been a, a New York Roadrunners without the New York Pioneer Club. Uh, but let me just briefly, on my father's front, say that his greatest contribution is in course measurement. The, the courses were, uh, I think he used the term pathetic or something like that, just how sport, uh, how a course could be advertised as 10 miles, but it, it, it could be nine and a half miles, ten and a half miles. My father won a national marathon on championships in 1954. The, the, the course was 26.8 miles. So here's your national championship race that is not accurately measured. Uh, the people used, used the car odometer for uh, measuring it, and that was uh, inherently inaccurate. So my father's greatest contribution to the sport was developing a system that modeled after the Rovers Club of England and John Jewell uh, in terms of measuring, uh, developing a system in the United States to measure courses. Uh, my father did all his letters in duplicate. So I, I have all his, his letters, and I'm going to publish a book of his letters at some point. But it was very difficult to get this movement started, the course measurement movement. All the big marathons were, were reluctant and apathetic in terms of you know, following or some guidelines to standardize course measurement. Um, so I, had, I just want to get that out there right off, that course measurement, uh, you can't have a legitimate sport without being able to verify records. And the, the courses just were not accurate. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, so much of our sport is the history, the inclusivity of it. You know, anyone can run, even though, if, you know, obviously the sport wasn't. The Pioneer Club was showing it could be done way back in the day, but it wasn't always, you know, America was a very different place. You know, the other thing I, I, I mean, your your dad was the grandson of slaves. You know, like to me, it's people, I think, you know, some people nowadays, like slavery seems such a long time ago, but. You're the great grandfather son of, of slaves. America's come a long way. <laughs> we still got ways to go, but it's just, I think the spirit of in- inclusivity is, was great with, with the club. I don't know too much about it, but another thing I also noticed in your, your dad's obituary, because so much of the, he was a true pioneer, but I didn't see mention of race in there. It was interesting. Like, what, what, did he, because he was the first black American marathoner. He, like, sort of desegregated a lot of these things or helped make a more inclusive thing. But like he didn't mention that in his, his obituary is very short. I'll post it on Let's Run. It's amazing because it starts off here. It's one, it's like one, two, three, four. It's only five. I can almost read it here. Five paragraphs. But, but it starts off. I ran and won my first race 60 yards in 1933. I wanted to be a sprinter, but two frequent hamstring muscle injuries ruled that out. And then it goes there, three more paragraphs, and says, at the end, it says, in 2002, at age 83, I walked 303 miles in a six-day running race. I would have loved to have run in a couple of six-day races in an effort to join the few men have run 600 miles in six days. I mean, your dad starts with running, ends with running. I mean, he's just true and true a runner. Um, but sort of, I was, I don't know, I was I originally sort of touching on this race thing, sort of. I don't know, talk about that aspect of your of your dad's life. Did he see himself as a true pioneer? Or was it just something that needed to be done? Like, yeah, well, he saw he saw the need 
in the sport. You know, get back to the administrative side. Uh, you know, he could have he could have given up with the course of measurement because it was he had a committee, a standard committee. All his members resigned, including John Sterner, who was uh, his my father's mentor in course measurement, because they couldn't. People weren't responding to phone calls or, or mail letters in terms of ask, answering questions. So where he he saw the need, he he stuck with it. Um, you know, I, I put together an African-American uh, black running history timeline starting in 1880 because a lot of people feel my father was the first. But there, I I can make a case that the greatest uh, era for black distance running was probably in the 1920s. You know, we, we can get into that at another time. Uh, but my father's teammate, uh, Lou White, preceded him. Uh, he was uh, third at Boston in uh Four, 1949 and third at Yonkers in 1946. Uh, so there, and, uh, and going back further in terms of Earl Johnson in the 20s and representing the United States in the 1920 and 24 Olympics. Uh, and then my timeline starts with Frank Hart in the pedestrian era. Uh, and my father's writing about his obituary. He, he, he talks about, uh, running 600 miles in six days. And I did not, I never understood. Significance of that to after his passing there. So I didn't understand the pedestrian era where the six day running, walking uh, races were the biggest sport in the land. So I, had met, I just want to make the point that there were, there were plenty of black achievements in distance running uh, before my father and, and the 1920s might be the greatest, greatest era of the world. Yeah, I saw that in some of your, well, I'll link to, I'll link to the, your website. TedCorbett.com, but yeah, you're, you're very clearly always saying, look, my dad wasn't the first guy and he traced this history back, which I think is cool. Um, and even like what you're saying now, like, cause I'm like, wait, why did your dad care about the six day thing? But you're influenced by the generation before you. And that was a big deal right before him. So it, it makes sense that sort of that's what he would aspire to. Yeah. The six, the six, the six day, 600 miles was, was, was a, a, a Landmark, mark by those athletes and walking. The other thing he wanted to do that he didn't do is walk a uh, hundred miles in 24 hours. Those individuals are called centurions. And, uh, uh, that's, that's a whole other side of things. And I, I think the sport, I think the growth in our sport distance side is, is with race walkers and people walking, you know, people running and walking now marathons and over six hours. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of growth there waiting to happen. You know Elliot Denman, the race walker? Oh, oh, yeah. Wasn't he? He was in the New York Pioneer, right? He, he's, a, he's a true pioneer. <laughs> and uh, Shrey C., proud member of the New York Pioneer Club. New York Pioneer Club had the best walking team in the country in the late 50s. The best. Ron Laird, Bruce McDonald, Ron Lusa, Elliot Denman, they all were pioneers. For those of you who don't know Elliot, like I know, I view him as just a, a see. Wow, he's almost. Well, I just turned ninety. Congrats, Elliot. I I view him as just a really nice journalist guy. He's always been great to Let's Run. It's crazy. He's ninety. I knew he was an Olympian in the race walk, and we at Let's Run can be dismissive of the race walk. And Elliot has never held that held that against me. He stands up for the race walk, but he he's cordial to me. And then I was reading how he's on the Pioneer Club, and I'm just like. This is cool to me, just like the fact that, like, you know, there is this. I have a, some connection to the club, but that Elliot's 
still here and and i'm sure you you elliot i don't know it, to me we read about stuff before we're alive and it seems so long ago but it's there's a direct connection there yeah, elliot attended the opening reception for the exhibit and um yeah he's i've learned more about uh, i actually learned more black running history from elliot than anybody by far by far and for those who know elliot is not a black guy um, so white, white race walker, if we're going to stereotype people, you know, but also, yeah, I noticed I'll get emails from you as well. Like you're good at doing the history. You also keep a, a list of, um, black American or black born, or maybe all, I don't know, American athletes under three hours in the marathon. It's crazy. There's only like, I think someone did it at the trials or no, someone else just did it in Chicago. Mm-hmm. There's only like 31 women who've ever done it. So it sounds like. Black Americans, I mean, it's now been, a, what, 100 years? You're saying the 20s. Like, the distance running is sort of, I don't know, taking a back seat. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, there's just well, so much opportunity to develop uh, American-born uh, black distance runners in the professional ranks. Uh, that 31 number is, is a low number. It's a list I've compiled. I've I started to include naturalized citizens when I started, but I, I, I just didn't have the time. And so I'm, again, I'm, I'm turning over this running history preservation work to a younger generation to, to carry forward and improve on what I've started. Uh, this should, will eventually have naturalized citizens, but there's only 31 uh, American born black women that have broken three hours. And, uh, that, that, that will improve. And the list is an inspiration to those seeking this mark. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, 31 is a tiny, tiny, tiny number. I mean, and you know, I guess give a plug for the for the exhibit. Try to get yeah. people to make sure they go and see it because I haven't seen it yet. So I haven't seen it. So if we yeah. wrap up with you, really Thank urging you. people to go see it because one, it's going to be gone. But two, like, you know, highlights of what they'll see. Well, the New York Roadrunners is now uh, the largest running organization in the world. Um. 66 years old this year. And this is the first time that this true history has been told and revealed at this exhibit. And it's not, it's just a small portion of it, but it's a launching pad. Uh, the true history of uh, the New York Roadrunners Club and the New York City Marathon up to 1976, as, as Pam Cooper has said eloquently, is that it's a, it's a black history story and it should be taught as such. And that the uh, uh, that the Pioneer Club's culture and what Joe Yancey brought to the table is a gift to the world. Uh, 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 the world, the, the world marathon culture, the urban marathon culture that is uh, um, in our sport today, where everybody's is welcome. Everybody's welcome. Joe Yancey's brought a culture. His whole his whole thing was to build. A team of men with character. So it was being a gentleman first, an athlete second. And mentioned Elliot Dunman. He's he's one of the proud pioneers. Craig Maspec, pioneer. Bob Beeman, John Carlos. Uh, I mentioned earlier the race walkers. Uh, it was uh, it was very unique club, most unique club probably ever in terms of just 
from field events to ultra marathoners to cross country field events. You know, covered everything. So this exhibit Wait. is uh, is, is a way to, uh, to start to tell this true story that, that has not been been told like this before. Wait, Bob Beeman was a member. Briefly, a member. Yeah. Wow. I mean, over over this shoulder right here, there's there's my. It's always on my desk. I got a picture of Bob Beeman and a picture of uh, Roger Bannister. Yeah. So, yeah. And Craig Mosbach, f- former head of USATF. I didn't know that. D- does the Pioneer Club still exist as an entity? Like, wh- what's the status now? No, no. Uh, there's a group in Boston now that, that's taken the that, that's, that's called the Pioneer Crew, they, and they've, they've named themselves with paying homage to the Pioneer Club. Uh, but no, not not no longer. And how did the name come about? Well, it was really, I think it was originally the New York Olympic Club. Uh, it was started in 1936, but there was, you know, there was an issue about using the name, I think, Olympics uh, in, in, the, in the title. Uh, so that, that, uh, that uh, changed that. But, you know, the answer was all about uh, education. Uh, it was an outgrowth of uh, riots that occurred in uh, 1935 in Harlem. And uh, it was a way for, uh, to, uh, Ride activities for the youth, youth of that era. That's kind of the early mission. Well, I mean, some things have been consistent, I guess, for 90 years of, with the Olympic Committee cracking down on the use of their name. But I think it's more fitting that they were called the Pioneer Club because, I mean, I'm learning. They really were true pioneers, and, and they represented what the sport is, is actually about now, like, you know. It wasn't back then. So, the, the team thank pic- you for help bringing this to life. The team pictures you'll see, uh, you know, some of the pictures are like 60, 60, 40, 60% black, 40% white. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a remarkable story. So, please, yeah, please, if you're in the New York tri state area, go go see it. Uh, com. I have a lot of information uh, there, and I'm about to start a foundation to help, uh, help, uh, moved NATO with uh, running history more and, and getting more younger scholars involved in this activity. So I appreciate this opportunity very much. All right, I, need, I need to make you a, I'm going to start, you know, I'm going to make you a yearly guest. So you, you, we can have like a run, his, running history segment once a year. Um, and re- related to that, you'll probably st- keep winning one of our contests. Before we started, you logged in to check how you did in the marathon trials contest. And another thing you're emailing me about was the history of the start times of the marathon. You said of the Olympic trials marathon, you said it was 12 noon, no matter what the weather. So should they have, should they have kept it at 12 noon in Orlando? What's your thought process on that? I think they should have moved it like they did because, but I think it was, it was good to have it warm because Paris is going to be warm. So you, uh, you know, uh, so I think that, that was good, but it, it was good to move it a little earlier. Yeah. Back in the day, Boston and Yonkers, the two biggest marathons in the country, always started at 12 noon. And these were the sites for Olympic trials and national championships in the case of Yonkers. Then you had the 1967 Pan Am trials in Holyoke. Uh, this was a 90 degree, 90% humidity day. Uh, these, these were, uh, I, I was at that race. I was at the 1964 Yonkers marathon race with Buddy Edlin, the greatest Marathon performance I ever witnessed ran 224 and it's 90 degree, 90% humidity day, uh, one by a couple miles. 
or John, young John Kelly. Um, the, yeah, that's a lot to get back. I mean, back in, back in the, the day we're talking about, they also refreshments, drinking, drinking water was discouraged. So these, 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 these men were running, uh, without proper hydration and the equipment they were running in, the shoes they were running in. <laughs> Different day. I wonder what, I wonder what your dad would find about the super shoes, but, um, yeah, it's, you're a true like bridge to the sport. Um, I don't think I mentioned this once we started recording, but I think one of the first emails I could find from you was like 16 years ago. And you were talking about the Roadrunners Club, and you said the first Roadrunners Club function I can remember attending was in 1959, a two-day clinic with Percy Cerruti at Van Cortlandt Park. I was eight years old, and Cerruti stayed with us during his New York visit. I mean, that's just super cool. A lot of a lot of innovations occurred in New York, and my father was a part of that, along with people like Aldo Scandura and Joe Kleinerman, John Stern, Aldo and Joe Kleinerman were Noah's AA members. But one of the things I've documented is that uh, most of the innovation in the sport, the long distance running, occurred in New York, and these were men who volunteered to be on committees and uh, chair committees, uh, AAU and RRC committees, and. Uh, when you had that position, you have a, you have control over the governance of the sport, and they they did that, including women. Another area dear dear to me is the early women running pioneers. That's a that uh, that's a whole another area of uh, growth. And uh, but it was was it was not a it wasn't much opportunity for women as as late as nineteen sixty. A half mile was about. Was about it, and then a mile and a half across country. But throughout the sixties, women could not compete uh, officially in uh, long distance races. Were there women in the Pioneer Club back in the day, or was it just men? Just men. Yeah, that uh, that uh, so Yancey never uh, changed that. Uh, that uh, later later in the nineties, uh, women were on the Pioneer Club, but not not during the the Tay Day. I think there's reasons we can have, you know, male spaces, female spaces, but obviously the opportunity to compete should be there. And I'm glad that's changed. Um, and one more question, I guess the New York Roadrunners when it first started. So essentially like it was like a collection of clubs, right? Like the pioneer club was there. Your dad was a pioneer club member. Um, Melrose, New York AC. Other people, like Fred LeBeau, wasn't he like central park track club at, and New York Roadrunners at the same time. So yeah. at some but point, Fred, the New York Roadrunners sort of evolved to being its own club, right? But it was a little bit different back then. Yeah, it was, it was, it's still the same way in terms of uh, they're, they're made up of clubs throughout the New York tri state area. Now, very important to remember, Fred, Fred LeBeau came on the scene 12 years after its start. You know, Fred Gibson, even as late as a recent uh, obituary, uh, uh, Dick Trom, uh, founder of the Achilles Track Club, say, stating that Fred was a founder. Uh, Fred, Fred was not around in the founding days. Fred, Fred was an important figure, but not, he wasn't part of the founding. The New York Van Runners today, it, it wouldn't be what it is without your dad or without Fred the Bow, but there's no way Fred the Bow deserves all the credit. I mean, the people like your dad and other people of his era, they created it. Um, oh. And so... 
we need the promoters and visionaries to make stuff grow, but it's, yeah. you're wanting to tell the accurate history, which I think is the most important thing for everything, right? Like tell the story of what happened um, and share it. And hopefully the rest of us can learn from it. And, you know, but I saw it firsthand and my father uh, documented because he was, he applied scholarship to everything he did. So I have, uh, I have, what I saw, my eye chest, and then I have written documentations. Uh, and this is, you mentioned briefly about the five borough marathon. This was, this is still being confused sometimes with my father not getting credit for coming up with the concept. But I have, I have a letter. I have le- written documentation of it. Yeah, it's weird because like, I feel like early this fall, I was like, I saw some reference to that. Is that accurate? I'm like, he, need, he needs more credit for this. But since then, there was a New York Times article in November that gave your dad credit. So I think I think this accurate story is being told. So that's good to hear. Yep. That's what it is. All right. Appreciate it. I'm going to check you. out the exhibit myself this week. Please do. And I uh, encourage everyone to do the, do the same if you can. Thank you. Thank you for that, this opportunity. We got two bonus clips here. When we were talking to Gary just after, and actually before we started recording, officially. First one is Gary talking about the big indoor meets at Madison Square Garden. Five every year. And after that, a clip on his dad doing all the administrative things in the sport. Yeah, throughout the 1960s, starting in 1961, I went to all, there were five indoor track meets uh, in New York, uh, the Murrows, the Knights of Columbus, uh, National U, the uh, IC4A, uh, I'm forgetting one. Uh, but there were five indoor track meets, uh, packed houses. Uh, I had the opportunity to see all the greats, John Thomas, Valerie Brumel going at it, all the pole vault landmark, uh, John Pinnell, all pole vaulters, Jim Beatty's, uh, Tom O'Hara, uh, I, uh, I was at all the meets, and so it's a uh, tremendous memories of uh, following track and field. Instead of instead of reading comic books as a kid, I, I I read track and field news cover to cover, and the long distance walks. I knew all all the stats and uh, knew who's who. I can't believe the IC four A's was at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, yeah, That's unbelievable. We, okay, we need somehow, maybe with LA 2028, we need to have one more meet somehow at Madison Square Garden. Or maybe once every four years, we just do it. Yeah, cool. Packed houses. Packed houses. We'll call it the Ted Corbett Games. Maybe that's, <laughs> maybe. We'll get on it. Okay. All right, thank you. Thank you. Take care now. My father said he, he, did, he did jobs that no one else wanted to do. And then he got, 10 years later, he got awards for these. Check out the exhibit at the New York Historical Society. That's at Central Park West between 76 and 77th Street. It's open 11 to 5 every day except Monday when it's closed and 11 to 8 on Friday. So go before Milrose on Saturday. Links to everything in the show notes.